Hello, world. Today, my guest is Seth Ferranti. Seth spent 21 years in federal prison after being convicted as an LSD kingpin. He initially faked his suicide to evade law enforcement, and he ended up on the U.S. Marshal's top 15 most wanted list before he was eventually arrested. Being a first-time nonviolent drug offender, the severity of his sentence garnished national attention and was covered extensively by The Washington Post, The Rolling Stone, Vice, and many other big publications. Hope that intro whets your whistle, folks. Without further ado, please welcome Seth Ferranti. Boom, Seth Ferranti, welcome to the show. So the uh, the short synopsis of your story is uh, you were a teenage LSD kingpin, right? Yeah, I mean, basically more or less. So what you could probably tell it better than I do. So people who aren't familiar with you, why don't you just give me like a quick background? I mean, basically, um, like around thirteen, I, I started getting into drugs. I started getting the counterculture, you know, mostly psychedelics and weed. And, um, you know, like it, it, most people, when you start using, you, you know, you look for, you know, especially when you're young, like you're, you're looking for a way to pay for it. So, you know, I was the type of person, you know, all my friends wanted weed, all my friends wanted LSD. So, you know, I was kind of the bold, adventurous one. So I would find the connects. I would find the people to go to and I would go and buy it, you know, and at first just get free drugs. You know, but eventually after doing that for a couple of years, you know, by the time I'm 15 or 16, I was like. You know, maybe I can make money, you know, doing this. So, mm-hmm. you know, I got better contacts. Um, I started following the Grateful Dead, you know, like the late 80s. Mm-hmm. What then, year was this? Oh, late 80s. Okay. Yeah, late 80s. Okay. You know, like around 87, 88, you know, when I was 16, 17 years old, like, a, a, you know, about a junior in high school. Started following the Grateful Dead, uh, got an LSD connect, um, got some weed connects, like actually – down here at Fort Myers, I got a weed connect out of Fort Myers. I got a weed connect in Dallas. I got a weed connect in Kentucky. Plus, I was getting stuff out of California, like Northern California, Emerald Triangle, through some homeboys in San Francisco. And, um, yeah, first it was just high school. You know, I went to a big high school, 4,000 people. You know, we had, like, a sister high school, like 4,000 people. So I was kind of doing hand-to-hand, you know, retail sales. But then as – as all those kids, this is in Northern Virginia, as all those kids went off to college, you know, they went to college and they would call me. They'd be like, hey, can you bring stuff up? And then instead of just one, you know, friend, it was like they had 25 friends, mm-hmm. you know. So then it just like, you know, about by 89, you know, just my my network just started expanding. You know, and really I only had... I only had like a nine month run where I would say like I was a real big drug dealer, you know, not even big in the big scheme of things. You know, I mean, I wasn't like Pablo Escobar, but, you know, for a teenager, I mean, I was 19. I was probably making like 25, 30 grand a month. And we're talking like 1989. Yeah, that's big money. You know, so, you know, and I was and not like I was getting a lot, but I was getting uh, like 10,000 hits of acid a month, you know, 100 sheets. And I would probably go through, I don't know, like 100 pounds. This brickweed, though, back then it's brickweed. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a totally different game than now. But I would get, like, 100 pounds of brickweed. You know, it might last me two or three months. In the fall, you could get good weed, like, from Northern California, like what they would call what they would call outdoor now. Mm-hmm. You know, but back then, like, we called it kind bud because compared to the brickweed, it was, like, kind. <laughs> so uh, I would get that at Kentucky, Southern Kentucky, and uh, Northern California. But you could only get that in the fall because, you know, it was like little small farmers. They'd grow like 25, 30 pounds. So by December, all that stuff would be gone. 
So was weed the best drug to make money off of? Was it, Could you make the most profit off of weed? Or, or why did you choose weed? Okay, listen. If you aren't already gambling and betting on sports, you need to be. Because I've been cashing in big for the last two months after I signed up with mybookie.ag. I fucking love mybookie.ag. I was using mybookie way before they reached out to sponsor the show. And this month only, our listeners and subscribers are going to get matched on their first deposit up to $500 when they sign up with MyBookie by using the promo code CONCRETE, K-O-N-C-R-E-T-E. Football season is officially here and betting, ugh, my throat is so, my fucking voice is so fucked up. Football season is officially here and the betting has begun. It's time for you to win big with MyBookie.ag. They have all the crazy pregame prop bets you could ask for, and you can even bet the games live to shift the odds into your favor and always come out on top. They are the leading betting site globally. That's why we use it, and I've been making so much goddamn money, I'm going to start investing in some more real estate. If you want to bet and win big this NFL season, it's got to be with mybookie.ag. Sign up today with a promo code CONCRETE, K-O-N-C-R-E-T-E, and you're going to get matched up to $500 on your first deposit. So do it now. Back to the show. I, you know, I always tell people, um, I never considered myself a criminal. You know, I, I, I considered myself an outlaw because I broke laws that I thought were wrong. So, I mean, I sold weed because, I mean, to me, weed and psychedelics are the righteous drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I never fuck with, like, cocaine, heroin. I, even, like, I never did drugs like that. I was never interested, you know, cocaine, heroin, meth. You know, because those, you know... People are always Jones in. It's like a bad drug. You know, addicts, people steal stuff. So I was never into that. You know, I was into what I consider the righteous drugs. And um, it's just because you, so it, it, you were mainly into trafficking weed because that's what the drug that you were into personally. Yeah. And, and, and also because, I mean, I, I like believed in it. I didn't think it should be illegal. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, I was like, why? It's a fucking plant, man. It fucking grows. You know what I'm saying? It's, right, it's been around. Yeah, it's been around forever. So sells cocaine though, right? Mm, uh, not in the form that you buy it in. I mean, cocaine's kind well, of before processed. you pour the gasoline on it and all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, but definitely weed. Uh, I mean, I would make a lot of money back then. I mean, I can make like a thousand dollars a pound, basically. You know, I would get brick pot out of like Dallas, Texas. I would get it for like three, four hundred a pound, and I could take it up to the East Coast and I could sell it for like you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen hundred a pound. Hmm. You know, easy. Mm-hmm. You know, back then I'd say ounces were probably going like. You'd pay maybe fifty, sixty a quarter, and an ounce of that brick pot would go for like one fifty, one sixty. Wow! And how old were you when you eventually got busted? I was I was twenty, twenty st- when I got. You were busted. only twenty years yeah. old when you got busted, and and how long did you do in prison? I did twenty five years. Well, I got sentenced twenty five years. I did twenty one years. Fuck. Yeah. So I went in. You know, I went in in nineteen ninety three, and I got out in two thousand fifteen. But um, wow. You know, I was a fugitive for two years too. So. You know, I, got, I caught my case summer 1991, got indicted, and I didn't, I didn't like what I was looking at. You know, they, they were talking about, you know, go to trial, you're facing 20 to life. Mm-hmm. You know, they, you know and, and that was like kind of the beginning of the war on drugs, 1991. And I was actually in the first wave of kind of the psychedelics and weed guys, you know, because when they made those laws in 1988, it was all for the, you know, the African-American guys in the inner city. Right, right, So they right. were cracking all those dudes in the head, giving them like 20, 30 years for right, like five for little grams. little stuff. Yeah, five grams of crack. That's why they made those laws. Mm-hmm. But then when they got some criticism, after they'd been doing that for about three years, they started getting criticized. And especially, I'm in Northern Virginia, so we're right outside of D.C. So that's, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, all the politics and stuff. So uh, 
I almost felt like when my case happened, it was it was like you know they were like, look, we bust white drug dealers too. I was in that first wave of like weed and psychedelic dudes, mm. you know, when they came out to the suburbs, you know, and they just started they just started hammering us. But um, yeah, they they were trying like I I was looking at twenty to life, you know, they wanted like back in the feds too because if you know anything about the feds, the feds got like a like a ninety nine percent conviction rate, right? Mm, so yeah, most people in the feds like plead guilty but even you know more people in the feds like cooperate mm-hmm. most that, people cooperate right yeah. yeah that's the only way to get your sentence down basically right. you know so they were pressing me to cooperate but you know i was like looking at the situation you know i didn't want to put somebody else in a fucked up situation l- like i was in i didn't want to do 20 to life and i had a little bit of money you know i didn't have a lot of money but i had a little bit of money you know i mean i was uh you know, like I said, I, I, I was making, you know, sometimes 20, 25, 30,000 a month. So I had a little bit of money put away. So, you know, I, I basically, I took off. I was like, man, fuck these guys. You know what I'm saying? And I took off and I was a fugitive for uh, two years. So I didn't get caught or in sentence until uh, 1993. Wow. So you were on the run for two years, you said? Yeah. What was it like when you first found out that you were in trouble or you had the feds on your, or that you were on the feds radar? Uh, I mean, it was a shock. I mean, because I mean, basically, I was I was a, a you know I grew up in the suburbs, man. So I was basically a white middle class kid, you know, military brat. So um, I just didn't think, you know, I didn't think that that I could face that type of time, especially for what I was doing, you know, considering I was nonviolent and 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 like I already said, I I didn't fuck with like what I considered the bad drugs, you know, I wasn't mm-hmm. a violent person. You know, so I, I was, like, really surprised. I was like, how the fuck could I be facing 20 years for, like, weed and LSD? And really not not even a lot. You know, in, in the big scheme of things. Right. I mean, I mean, there's dudes bringing, like, tons of marijuana into this country. Right. You know, I mean, and, and like, I, I knew the LSD scene and the, the Grateful Dead. I mean, the chemists, I mean, they make, like, hundreds of grams of LSD. Like, each Grateful Dead show, they would fly 25 grams of LSD into each show. <laughs> You know, and I was getting like, I was getting like one, you know, one gram, you know, basically a month. One one gram is like a hundred sheets. It's like 10,000 10, hits. Wow. So I was getting like a gram a month. You know, in each Grateful Dead show, they were flying in 25 grams. So I was like, you know, yeah, in high school, you know, in, in you know, a, a freshman, a sophomore in college. Yeah, I was a big drug dealer, you know, because, you know, I had the money. I had the drugs. Yeah. So you were the you know, guy. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're all kids. Yeah. But, you know, in the big scheme of things, so, um, yeah, I was fucked up, man, when, when that shit happened. I was like, I couldn't believe it. You know, it was kind of like, uh, I mean, it was really a big shock to me. And it was also, even more to me, it was like a, uh, it was like a betrayal to me, you know, because I grew up, you know, I was American. You know, I was like, man, this is my country. You know, I believe all the bullshit, land of the free, home of the brave, you know, capitalism, you can do anything you wanted. And then, like, they're going to come and hammer me. And I'm like, damn, I'm like fucking, you know, not, I didn't go to war or nothing. You not know? so free anymore, is it? Yeah. I mean, I didn't, <clears throat> not like I went to war and fought for the country, you know, but I, whatever, if they called me, I would have, yeah. you know, just, you know, that was my time, you know, they didn't have that then. So whatever, you know, but I was like a red blooded American dude. And they, I, you know, I felt, I was like, damn, my own fucking country's doing this shit to me. Mm, just you know, for some, you. Yeah. For some fucking weed and LSDs for some <clears throat> shit that should be legal. So right. that's really that's really how I felt. That's like was really my motivation. You know, now I can say now, you know, whatever. Thirty years later, I mean, I feel justified in my actions, but you know, maybe I was a man ahead of my time or whatever. But I mean, that was like my whole thing. 
You know, yeah, I, I'm not saying I didn't. I like to make money. I mean, everybody likes money. Who doesn't like money? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Money makes life easy. So I like money. You know, I like being the rock star. You know, I like getting that recognition, you know, being the man when I came in. I liked all that. You know, but I have like an underlying, my underlying thing was this shit should be legal. I mean, all my friends smoked weed. You know, not all my friends did LSD, but a lot did LSD. I was like, you know, people, you party, man. You fucking do shit. That's what you do, especially, you know, whatever you want to say. White America, whatever America, college America. I mean, that's what people do. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I saw myself as like a facilitator of that whole scene. Mm. Now, the whole thing started was when there was like, wa- watching the Little Vice clip, there was like some kid who was running through the woods naked on LSD and he shot, he grabbed the cop's gun and shot him in the arm or something. Yeah. That so, was like the, the cataclysm of everything, right? Yeah. So there was this, um, you know, they got this area in Fairfax County uh, called Clifton, and it's, like, all, like, big million-dollar houses. And, th- you know, this is, like, back then it was million-dollar houses. So we're talking, you know, like, 89, 90. And they're all, like, on five or six acres. And, uh, you know, sometimes, like, every time, like, any any place in the suburbs, you know, when people's parents go out of town, people throw parties, mm-hmm. you know? So they used to, th- but they used to throw some big parties out there because they had a lot of land, you know? Sometimes they would, like, bring, they would bring, like, stages out for bands. They would bring, like, <laughs> skateboard ramps. They would, like, literally move skateboard ramps in, you know, and have skate shows and all types of stuff. So they were having this big party out there. And, um, you know, eventually, like, all parties, you know, the, the cops get called, you know? So the cops got called, and there was this one kid, I, I never met the kid. I don't know who he is, but, uh, you know, 15-year-old kid. I mean, his name was all in my paperwork. I can't remember it, though. But, uh, like, a little 15-year-old kid, he was tripping on acid. He was, like, basically the cops came, and, like, he freaked out, and he was running through the woods naked. And, you know, this cop chased him down, you know, tackled him or whatever, grabbed him, and, and I guess whatever. The kid freaked out, grabbed the cop's gun, and, uh, you know, he shot him. But it was, like... Basically, like, he shot him in the arm, man. So, I mean, you know, I mean, it could have been... I'm not downplaying anything. I mean, it could have been more serious. I mean, Mm -hmm. he shot him. But, I mean, he shot him in the arm, you know, so basically, like, a flesh wound or whatever. But uh, that, like you said, that was a catalyst Yeah. for my case because that was, like, LSD. That was, like, LSD that came from, you know, a batch that I brought into the area. So... And that kid told him your name? Well, he didn't know my name, but, you know, he knew... he, He told him who he got it from. And, you know, this is how the feds do. The feds, it's like dominoes. Yep. You know, so let's say something happens to you. They're like, who do you get it from? Oh, I got it from him. You know, and he got it from him. And it's just, it's like dominoes. You know, that's how the feds do because they go and threaten, you know. Especially, you know, back then they, they go and threaten, you know, middle class kids. Tell them they're going to go to jail for tenor life. And, and, and they do. They, they play it up. They say like, oh, yeah, you're going to end up in the cell with fucking Big Bubba. Mm-hmm. And what do you think is going to fucking happen? Yeah, they really sell it to you. Yeah, man. You know, and, and, <clears throat> and like I say, I'm not saying whatever, you know, you break the law, you get caught, you got to do time. But, you know, the, the more, the older I've gotten, I look at how the system is, you know, the war on drugs, all that. I mean, everybody can say now that the war on drugs was wrong pretty much. But it's, it's more than the war on drugs, man. You got to look at the way law enforcement operates. You got to look at the way, you know, that they try to manipulate people and the things they say. I mean, really, if you think about it, dude, that shit is, like, fucking evil, man. Yeah. Those are some, you know, some of those dudes are just doing their jobs, and, you know, they're probably decent dudes, and they probably let motherfuckers off for some little bullshit or some weed or whatever. Mm. But the whole concept of that whole war on drugs and law enforcement and, and forcing people 
to inform, you know, on their friends, you know, become an outcast or whatever. I mean, I'm not even going to say take it to like, you know, it's not not like we were the mafia. So it's not like anybody was, you know, fearing for their lives because they snitched. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying just that's like, you know, traumatic to put somebody, you know, like, like what do you think most people do? Oh, you're going to go to jail 10 to life and Big Bubba's going to be your cellmate. Right. You know, and you're fucking like an 18-year-old fucking white kid. And, you know, you just want to fucking go to college and party. Right. You know, so, uh, you know, at the time when all that shit happened, probably my first five years in prison, you know, I was, I was pretty angry, you know, and I'd be like, oh, fuck these snitches, rat-ass motherfuckers. You know, whatever. You got to be hard, play the convict role and shit. You're in prison, you know. Got to put the mask on and all that shit. But, uh, you know, now I, I look at it, you know, as the years went by and I got older, I just look at it more like... uh I mean, it's a system. It's a system that's fucked up. I mean, you know, you still might got some pure say, oh, well, somebody shouldn't have told somebody. No, the system is what is fucked up to make people have to make those choices. What was the story leading up to your final arrest to when you actually went to prison? Like, explain the story how you're on the, when you're on the run and you had to, you did some research and you figured out how to create a bunch of fake identities and then you tried to eventually fake your death. Yeah, well, you know, the, the fake identity started basically, um, <clears throat> you know, getting fake ID to go to bars, you know, because I was all the East Coast colleges. So I had a b- bunch of buddies at West, West Virginia University, right, in Morgantown. And um, it was like you could just go up there. And you know you need a fake i uh, you need a fake ID for the bars on Main Street, so you would just go down in somebody's room, and they would like have all the f- photography stuff, everything set up, you know, where they could process it, you know, the computer stuff, and and print it out. And um, that's when I start first started getting fake IDs, you know. So I had a bunch of like I was seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. I got a whole bunch of fake IDs just to go to the bars at the colleges. You know, what I mean, it's it's like some bullshit. You know, it's not going to stand up, but you know, at night. You know, going in with the bouncers, yeah, that shit's good enough. Stand. Yeah, it's good enough. So that was kind of like my first experience with fake IDs. So then when I caught the case, you know, and I, and I started deciding, like, you know, I, I was going to take off. I already had some fake IDs, but I was like, man, these, they're not going to, you know, stand the test of time, you know, like in the daylight with a cop. Right. You know, I'm like, this shit ain't going to work. So you got like holograms and shit built into them. But were they, was it like that back then? Yeah, yeah, they they, yeah. they 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 had like the little holograms, but it would be like, I mean, it would, it would just be like pressed or something. So right. it would it would try to emulate a hologram, but it would be like pressed on the plastic or whatever. So, I mean, it really you know wasn't that good. But uh, so I started, I was like, man, I got to find a real ID. And um, I'd actually read this book, uh, the book that they made into a movie. You know, they made the movie uh, Catch Me If You Can. Mm-hmm. Like whatever, like two thousand or something, early two thousand. But the dude wrote the book like in the mid eighties. You know, he wrote that book. So I'd actually read that book, and I, I'd read other stuff like that. And I was kind of interested in stuff like that. You know, for uh, I wouldn't say from like a criminal pursuit, but more you like from a scholarly or academic pursuit. You know, I've always been a big reader, so I was I was interested in basically like how people would like. Uh, and I don't even want to say fraud, but just how like how people would get over, mm-hmm. you know, not like in a fraudulent way, like you're ripping people off for money, just how people would like get over on authority. You know, that's always kind of been my thing. And um, I found these companies, man, they had these companies, uh, Paladin Press, Loom Panics Unlimited. And it was like 
subversive books. Like probably one of the most famous books that a lot of people have heard of that these companies sold was the Anarchist Cookbook, mm-hmm. which in the mid-90s, you know, exploded, you know, when the Internet, you know, came around and the Anarchist Cookbook came out and uh, basically taught everybody how to make meth. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the most famous. But these companies, all they sold was like these subversive you know, underground books, how to do, you know, and it's all protected by the First Amendment right. Mm. So um, I'm not even sure if these companies, like after the Patriot Act, I think they, you know, uh, put these companies out of business. So I'm not even sure if they still exist. But um, they had like, you could get their catalogs and they had like this whole section on um, like getting fake ID, right? But, but not even fake ID, like real ID. So what I did is I ordered, like, all these books, man. I ordered, like, 25 books. It was, like, there was this one author, like, uh, it was, like, called Reborn in America, Trent Sands. They had this whole series called The Paper Trip. It was, like, The Paper Trip 1, 2, 3, 4. You know, they had, like, books like Understanding U.S. Identifying Documents. You know, just, like, a litany of books, man. I mean, they had, like, a whole, there was probably 40 or 50 of these books. So I ordered, like, 25 and I just, I read them all, man. I read them, like, from cover to cover. And it's, that's the type of dude I am, too. Like, when I want to do something, I like to read, I like to research, and I like to read, and I, I like to get as much knowledge as I can about it. But then <clears throat> I like to make my own plan, you know what I'm saying, based off the information, you know, that I attained. Mm-hmm. You know, because sometimes you would read one of these books, and there might be, like, one page or, like, one chapter that I actually learned something you know, because a lot of it was just like rehash, you know, a lot of these books rehash, but there might be one insight that, that, that the author gives you, you know, that you can take and it's very valuable. So, um, yeah, I did that. And I basically learned to, uh, you know, what they call paper trip. And, um, that was like, I would get real ID from the, from the department of motor vehicles, you know, licenses, uh, you know, like what they call the Walker Walker licenses. You know, like not a driver's license, mm-hmm. just a Walker's just license. ID. And um, and I would basically, I would do this. What I learned from these books is, you want to find a candidate that died before he was five. You know, so find someone that passed away for whatever reasons. You know, died before they were five, and you wanted to find somebody that was born in one state and died in another state, because um. You know, back then, even though they, even back then, they probably had the technology, but, you know, they, they didn't have the money to cross-reference all these records. So let's say, like, if you're born in Tampa Bay and you die in Tampa Bay, it's like the same department. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, same the vital, place they can find yeah, they all call, your Yeah, they info. call it, it's like a, a, the vital health records mm-hmm. or, you know, department of vital statistics or whatever. So they, they, they match your records up and they, they'll stamp deceased on the birth certificate. But if you die in one, if you die in one state and you're born in another state, especially different states, I mean, you know, I mean, they don't even do it on a state level. Probably like even in Florida, they don't even do it. You know, it's different counties, but definitely they don't do it across state lines. So once I found this out, I would scour the uh, obituaries. Right. So I would I would go through obituaries and I would look. This was my candidate. You know, I would look for a candidate, somebody that was under five. And the reason I would pick somebody under five, because typically, you know, especially back then, you know, in this like the 70s, like I was born in 1971. So I was looking somebody, you know, that was born like anywhere from 68 to 70, you know, 76. I had about an eight year window. But especially back then. Before before you were five, you didn't get a social security number. 
you know. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. Nowadays, they may give it to you younger, you know what I'm saying? But back then, you know, you they didn't get a, you a Social Security number. Sometimes not until you were like a teenager, you know, and huh. you started working. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so things were different back then, you know. So um, you would want a kid under five because then they don't have any other, you know, records or vital statistics. So it's just basically the birth certificate. So I would look for the, I would look through the obituaries and in the obituaries, I'm looking for this candidate. And then from the obituary, you basically, um, you know, get a lot of information that you need to order the birth certificate, right? From, from the obituary, I would get like to order somebody's death certificate. You need to know their name, place of death, date of death, right? So I could find somebody there. I get those three things. I order the death certificate. Then with the obituary and the death certificate, I can get the five things that I need for the birth certificate. Because to get the birth certificate, you need like a full name, place of birth, date of birth, father's full name, mother's maiden name. Mm. Right? And, and like I say, these are just the vital, you know, statistic bureaus or whatever. So, I mean, basically you, you write a letter, you know, you do it through a mail drop you know, like a P.O. box that looks like a real address, mm-hmm. you know, and you, you send them a money order, you know, like 8 or $10, and you say, like, basically, like, you know, I'm the person's father, or I'm the person's, you know, and it just has to be a relative, you know, and so you write. And then once you got the obituary, you find the candidate, you get the death certificate to get all the information you need for the birth certificate. Once you get the birth certificate, you're pretty much home free. Because, hmm. look, I can get that birth certificate, and you know now this is like whatever you know I'm like I'm like I'm like 20 so and a lot of times it maybe the older you get it's harder to do and it's probably harder to do now because they got identity theft and all that back then they didn't even ha- have identity theft they didn't have identity theft till like around the mid 90s or something yeah. you know so it wasn't even back then you could legally have an ID in someone else's name as long as you weren't using it for fraudulent purposes wow I mean, but, you know, that's, that's <clears throat> like America, you know, that's what America used to be, yeah. stuff like that. You know, it's changed a lot. But so once I got the birth certificate, I was home free because then I could go in to any DMV, right? And the only, a lot of times if you just get the walker's license, not the driver's license, all you need is a birth certificate and like an address, you know, like, you know, address that says you live here, you know, like an electric bill or something like that, you know, in that name. Right. And to get the driver's license, you just need to verify a social security number. And so what I used to do to verify a social security number, I, I had this book. It was called Understanding U.S. Identifying Documents. And in the I, Understanding Ident, U.S. Identifying Documents, each state has like a the fir, your first three numbers and your social security number are, are by state. Mm. So each state has like, you know, from, you know, whatever, 039 to so that determines the state then the two middle numbers go by the year but it's not like if you were born in 71 the middle two numbers are going to be 71 it's like if you were born in 71 in that state the numbers might be two three Mm. but it's all done by a chart it's all like corresponding they have these charts in the book you know because that's what the social security administration people use and then the last four numbers are random so what i would do is you know, depending on where the person was born, I would fucking determine what the number is. I would look at the charts, you know, in the years and everything, and then I would determine that. And then, um, and then, like, I would get a W-2 form, right? And I would put that Social Security number and that person's name, 
you know, whose identity I was going to assume. And I'd make it seem like I worked at like some local place, you know, restaurant or whatever. And I'd write their address and I'd do a W-2 form, just like, you know, they give you a W-2 form. And you can get W-2 forms from like any uh, like business wholesale supply company. You can go buy like a box Hmm. of like those government, those government printed you know, right. like, I mean, I don't, I don't know what it is now, but back then, you know, cause everything's probably electronic now, but back then it's like, you know, these multi, you know, like, so it makes like five copies. Yeah. Yeah. The carbon copies. Yeah. 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 That's so, you know, you could just type it right on. I have a typewriter. I would type that shit on and then I would go in. I'd have the birth certificate. I would have the, uh, W2 to verify my social security, even though the social security was fake under scrutiny the social security number would not stand up mm-hmm. because it was fake. But a lot of times when you just go to the driver's license, you know, that social security more like if you went to a bank or you try to open a bank account, because I did that a couple of times. I tried to open a bank account under these assumed names mm-hmm. and the social security number never stood up because they, uh. they would tell me straight up. They'd be like, uh, are you sure that's your right social security number? <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, I think I need to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. We have a guy on here who used to do the same thing for bank, for bank fraud and he would go and uh, he would get he would convince homeless guys he'd pay them for all of their information for their social security number for all of that stuff give him like 20 bucks he'd, he'd spend like 100 bucks and get five socials <laughs> oh yeah oh he's probably killing it huh? oh yeah he was killing it yeah i know i know now a lot of people they get those federal tax numbers <clears throat> you know like the 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 federal uh it's just like a social security number except yeah. for a business mm. It's like a tax ID the EIN number. number yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, mm-hmm. in, in like, like dudes will buy like you can like get like ten of those. I mean, I don't know where they get them from, but they get like ten of them. And if they're good, like they just use those like social security numbers just for like all types of different fraud. Really? Yeah. Hmm. You know, ex-cons, ex-cons are in. They're the- not hard to look up. You can like Sunbiz is the Florida like yeah. business directory. You can you can just type in any name. You can find a list of businesses and look yeah. it up. Find all their EIN numbers. Most most ex-cons, most ex-cons are. Um, they basically do like. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying all. I'm not trying to put a bad name on ex-cons, but ex-cons that are still doing criminal stuff. They basically do like weed stuff, and um, like fraud. You know, because it's it's like, you know, the least, you know, once you get in there and you learn like what they punish, you know, so yeah. it has the biggest risk or the biggest reward with the least risk. Mm. Yeah. But um, so how many of these fake IDs did you create? I, mean, I probably had like 25, 25 yeah, one time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I had four passports in different names. You know, my eventual plan was to get like a quarter million cash. And fuck off, you know, because, cause, you know, I, I was a military brat. So, look, I lived in Germany for two years Pull when I was a little bit closer. I lived in Germany for two years when I was a kid. I lived in England for three years. So I was familiar with Europe. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I, I was going to, you know, but I don't know. The, a lot of the stuff with, with dealing drugs and I guess with anything in life, like, you just get used to the, the lifestyle, you know, and then it's just you're just trying to maintain the lifestyle. Mm. You know, so I guess I guess that could be said for any any walk of life or whatever, but uh, yeah, I never got that quarter of a million, and I never got to Europe. <laughs> yeah, clearly, right. Yeah. So what what did happen? What what happened? You know, you had all these IDs. You were basically you knew the feds were on to you. Didn't didn't you didn't you have like your phone tapped? Didn't you and your friends have like your phones tapped? You knew they were like following you, right? And they were like pinpointing where you were at and tracking what you were doing. 
Yeah, well, well, not at first. I mean, you know, for two years. So I'm a fugitive for two years. So look, like the first six months, like I'm paranoid. Like I think like the Fed's got that power, you know, because when you go through a situation like that, especially as a young kid, and basically, you know, all your friends tell on you, and um, you're just like, you think the Feds are like omnipotent. Right. But in reality, right, they're not omnipotent. All their information they're they're getting from the people that you know. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so at first, you know, I'm saying they I mean they can't tap people's phones and all that, but that that with me that came like it, that was like maybe like a like when the US Marshals were like hot on my trail, like right at the end. Mm. You know, they were kind of tracking my movements through like a one eight hundred beeper. Okay. You know, but that was like like right at the end. But you know, so for the first six months, I would say I, w- I was pretty paranoid because I thought they had all these powers, and uh, plus I was fucked up. You know, I always tell people it's like, um, you know, that there's this Jimi Hendrix song. You know, that it, it's like called "Castles Made of Sand," and it's like, you know, castles made of the sand slip in the sea eventually, mm-hmm. and that was kind of like like my story. You know, because um, you know, I made myself into this like you know want to be rock star or whatever, but it was all based, you know, on, on my ability to, to move weed and, and LSD, you know, and um, when that foundation was, like, ripped out from under me by the feds, I, I mean, I was fucked up. I didn't know who I was, you know, so, you know, it, it's all this shit, and then, you know, I take off, I'm a fugitive, I can't even be my real name, so that first six months, you know, a lot of paranoia, a lot of, like, you know, you're just, like, questioning, like, you know, who the fuck am I? What am I doing? You know, is this the right thing? But, you know, at the same time, the fucking alternative, you know, snitch on your fucking friends or do 20 to life. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you're just like, fuck. But, uh, you know, after six months, it took me about six months, I'd say I started getting my mojo back. And um, first I went out, out to L.A. I was in Hollywood. You know, I had a little bit of money. I spent it, though, really quick. Like, when six months, I spent all the money I had. So I ended up back in Dallas, Texas. With my weed connect, this dude, you know, uh, Mexican Eddie, who had a, a trucking line, was bringing weed over from Matamoros up to uh, Dallas. And I started selling weed in, um, you know, like Texas and Dallas. But, uh, I mean, down there it was like, back then, like ounces were going for like 60. So it was like, you really couldn't make a lot of money. So I was kind of selling weed to like this, uh, there was this restaurant, it was called Harrigan's. And um, I was kind of selling weed to like the restaurant crowd. You know, um, I lived with this dude. He was a cook. Um, he was actually from Missouri. So one weekend he was like, hey, dude, I'm going to go home, you know, and fucking go party. He's like, you want to come? And I'm like, shit. And I'm like, you know, people that can sell weed, can you sell some weed? And he's like, fuck yeah. So I go to my dude, Mexican Eddie, you know, I grab like fucking 20 pounds and I'm like, fucking, we drive up in this dude's truck. And fucking, uh, I didn't even sell all the weed, man. I probably only sold like 14 pounds. I probably bought six pounds back to Texas, but I made connections. And then that was kind of how I made my money in the first place. I would like buy something somewhere at a low cost and I would bring it somewhere else Mm. and sell it for a higher cost. I mean, that's the basic premise of, you know, drug smuggling. Mm -hmm. So, uh, once I found this out, I was like, fuck it. I was back on, you know, where I could, I had a margin. I could make like a thousand dollars a pound taking that shit up to St. Louis. So, um, I started doing that, kind of got my fucking mojo back, you know, and basically I had like another little run, you know, like another little run probably, you know, it took probably took me like six to nine months to build up my clientele where I was making good money. And then I had about probably another nine, eight, nine month run before, before the feds got me and, uh, how that happened 
It was actually the same dude, the cook. We'll just call him the cook. And um, he was selling weed for me up there, and he was still working as a cook. And uh, he was actually working at TGI Fridays right by the St. Louis airport. And so we were actually going out to party in the street, uh, this place that's called uh, St. Charles. It's like Main Street, like down, down on the river. But he needed to go make a drop with one of his guys, you know, at TGI Friday. So we go to make the drop, but, you know, the, the, the kitchen is so busy. You know, it's like on a Friday night, his dude can't get off the line, so we, he doesn't make the drop, you know. And it's not even a lot of weed. It's like a half pound. So, you know, but I don't know this, you know. he, You know, I thought he made the drop, so whatever, you know, my bad you know, or whatever, but he didn't tell me. So then we go and I make a drop, you know, I dropped like two pounds with this guy and, uh, you know, we're waiting in the back of a Burger King parking lot and, you know, we're about to go out and party and I'm just waiting for money. And I don't think my dude has any weed and he doesn't say nothing. So, you know, we're sitting in the back of Burger King parking lot and we're just fucking smoking joints like fucking crazy. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, and this is another fucking, uh, you know, turn of bad luck. So it just so happens, like we were in the Burger King first, we were eating, but you know when people do drug deals, they take forever. So, you know, I give this dude two pounds, he goes down to the trailer park, it's taking him fucking forever to bring the fucking money. So we eat in the Burger King, we go out, we're smoking fucking joints, and um, just so happened this Burger King had got robbed like a week before, and they had gone in the back. So they see us out in the fucking back in a truck, and they fucking call the cops on us. You know, the cops roll up and the fucking, they smell the weed. You know, so boom, they're like fucking on us. And, you know, I'm thinking we're, we're cool. Like, whatever. I got a couple of joints on me. Well, you know what the fuck they're going to do. You know what I'm saying? But uh, dude had a half pound in a guitar case. And they found that. So they arrested us both, brought us in, printed us. And still, I'm good because it's, it's not my car. I'm under fake ID. And it's his weed, so, I mean, he got to take it, whatever. I mean, it's my weed, but, you know, really, I fronted to him. It's his weed. It's his responsibility. So, you know, he does the right thing. He tells him it's my weed. He tells him I don't know anything about it, but they printed me, right? And when I was a fugitive, I had watched all those shows, like America's Most Wanted, you know, like all all the fucking all the fucking shows, you know, because I, I was interested. Like, did you become more interested in it once you be, you were on the run? Oh, of course. I was studying. I was like, <laughs> right. how do they find people? Right. You know, I like how long does it take? <clears throat> you know, from so from watching these shows, uh, I'd seen like serial killers. It took them like ninety days to match up their prints, like fucking serial killers, right? So I was like, who the fuck am I? I'm like a little fucking weed fucking LSD dealer, nonviolent, you know, fucking from the suburbs. I'm like, who the fuck gives a fuck about me? But um, I had no idea. I had no idea. I was top 15 U.S. Marshals list. Oh, shit. Yeah, top 15 fugitive, dude. Like, for whatever fucking reason, right? So they match out my fucking prints in like three days, and they got the fucking, because they, they released me, you know, because dude, he's like, it's my charge, it's my car, it's my weed. So they released me, but they ran my prints, you know, because that's what they do when they arrest people. They just run your prints just to see. They mash up my prints, and they're like, oh, you're not fucking this dude. You're fucking Seth Ferrante. So fucking the the fucking uh, fugitive task force is, like, fucking on my, my tail. And this dude, it's, like, his real name. And, like, you know, he has family in St. Louis. You know what I'm saying? So they're, like, all on his grandparents and his fucking mom and shit. And he's all, like, fucking freaking out. And then he starts fucking cooperating and uh 
that was when it was like the little thing, like the seven days where they were like tracking my movements because mm. they were trying to see, cause you know, I, I had some weed, so I was selling weed and the dude, the cook who got busted knew I had weed and I was trying to, you know, I knew I got arrested, but I had no idea they're going to match my prints and the fugitive task force is looking for me. But still, I'm still like, I need to get the fuck out of Dodge because they're going to match my prints up in like fucking 16 to 90 days and they're going to find out who I am. So I'm trying to fucking move this weed and then I'm going to fucking take the money and I'm going to go fucking, you know, just basically go somewhere where nobody knows me and hide out. But, you know, I didn't have the opportunity because they were fucking on me. And Is that when you tried to fake your death? Oh, no. Yeah, I skipped that part. So uh, when you go back to that, that was when I left. So when I left in 91, right, that was like, I told you I was doing everything with the books. I was I was coming up with a fake ID plan, mm-hmm. right? And then this was like my, my grand plan, right, after getting the fake IDs. Because I knew if I was gone, like after seven years, like if I just disappeared, like after seven years, like you could be declared legally dead in this country. Okay. Like if you just disappear without a trace mm-hmm. and nobody finds a body or nothing, like in seven years you can do be declared legally dead. So that was like my, that was like my grand plan because I was like, how the fuck can Seth Ferrante just go away and these charges just go away and I can just be okay, mm-hmm. you know, and just live as somebody else? And I was like, you know, after seven years, my parents would have to declare me legally dead. So what I did is I, I got the fake ID and I was ready to go and I had a little bit of money, but, you know, then I, I wanted to throw something extra into it. You know, I wanted to fake my suicide because that, w- that was like my plan. Then, boom, I fake my suicide. My body washes out to the Atlantic Ocean. They never find my body. Seven years, I'm declared legally dead. No Seth Ferrante, no federal case. You know, so I'm good. I can just live my life as whoever. You know, but, um, so I made this whole big plan. There's this place in Northern Virginia. It's called uh, Great Falls. It's like a national park. And it's like, it's like a lot of cliffs and it's like rapids. And um, it's, it's kind of famous, like, uh, among kayakers because they got, like, what they call Class 5 rapids. And, like, all the superstar kayakers like to go kayak there Mm -hmm. because class five is like you know like you don't want to unless you're like superstar kayaker you don't want to kayak there it's like a uh, like a black diamond of skiing yeah basically or even like double black diamond yeah but uh yeah so it's basically like if you fall in the water there there's so many rocks in the in the river so uh you know move so much it's so rapid that you know you're gonna you're uh, done yeah knocked unconscious drowned yeah so from being in that area in Northern Virginia and going to high school there, I used to remember, uh, you know, I was always a big sports guy. So I remember, you know, back then it was newspapers, you know, it wasn't the internet. So every day I would like rip over the Washington Post and I would go to the sports section. Before the sports section is the metro section. So sometimes, you know, I might catch the headline on the metro section. And I remember people always committing suicide there at hmm. Great Falls because they would jump in the water and get smashed against the rocks and drown. So it was like, it was like a... You know, it was like a popular spot for mm-hmm. suicides, you know? Interesting. So. Die in nature peacefully. Mm-hmm. So I remember this, right? So then when all this comes about, I'm like, boom, Great Falls, fake my suicide, disappear, seven years, declared legally dead, no case. So that's my whole plan, right? So I make this whole plan. You know, I do a suicide note. I park my car there. I stage a little, uh, you know, I make a little setting on the side of the cliffs, you know, like with, uh, 
you know, with like my clothes, my wallet, I put like a vodka bottle, you know, I like even leave money in my wallet, you know, like a pack of cigarettes, you know, some weed, like I was sitting there, you know, contemplating suicide. I even leading up to this for like two weeks, I was even like dropping hints to people, you know, people that I knew or people that I was around like, oh man, I don't know if I can take this, you know, blah, 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 whatever. And, um, so I staged my suicide, you know, and, and, um, I actually, I was on the, on the cliffs, like it's in an area where you're not supposed to be, you know, it's not necessarily roped off, but it's just like, you know, off the path. And I waited until some people came by, like some joggers. I went up there and I'm like, my friend jumped. And then I just rolled out, you know, and I had somebody waiting for me and I went in the car, you know, then they took me to the airport and I flew to California. You know, but um, I found out years later those people, because when I was in prison, I got all the uh, Freedom of Information Acts, and those people actually did, like, a report with a park ranger. Like, they were the people who reported it, you oh, know, that I shit. went in. Yeah, but, um, you know, when, when that first happened, I was out in L.A., in Hollywood, and I, I'm reading the papers every day, right? Because I, I want to see, like, I'm, I'm de- declared dead, mm-hmm. right? So first it, it comes out, and it says, like, you know, Fairfax, LSD, Kingpin, commit suicide and i'm like fuck yeah i'm like my plan's gonna work and dude i'm like 20 so you know i'm like fucking you know like i'm saying i I mean i was a smart kid for 20 but still i'm like 20 so i'm like incredibly naive in a lot of things you know but you know you know think you're that age and you're like man like something you planned you know monumental and it's fucking going down right but so then i kept reading the fucking things right and then uh like two weeks later dude i was just like fucked up like just fucking like heartbroken because I read the headline. It said fucking, it said the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, you know, calls the Fairfax LSD kingpin suicide a hoax. <laughs> and I was like, what? So I fucking start reading it, right? And I read the fucking article, dude. And it's like crazy because I'm like literally driving down. Like back then they had newsstands, you know. So like you would go to the newsstands to get like the newspapers from different areas. You know what I'm saying? Like in the big cities. So I'm like literally going down there. I'm like running to the newsstand. It's like a big magazine newsstand. I'm like ripping off the paper and I'm like reading. I'm just sitting on like, you know, Hollywood, Main Street, Russell and Bustle reading this shit. And fucking just like, you know, I mean, on the outside, I probably look cool. But like on the inside, you know, my fucking heart is just crushed because they said it's a hoax. Because what I did, I planned everything brilliantly, right? But I, I committed, I staged my suicide on the wrong side of the fucking dam. Right, so my body didn't wash out to sea. Right, they dragged the river for two weeks because it would right by the dam. dam. Yeah, and they didn't find a body. So when they didn't find a body, they told the prosecutors there's no body, the park rangers, and so they said it's a hoax. So you know, I mean, I thought I was smart, but you know, in retrospect, I was probably a little dumbass. (laughs) Whoa, were you in touch with any of the people in your life after that? Did you let them know like, hey, this is not real. I'm still alive. Like, what about your parents? Like, anybody? Only, only my mom. The dude that drove me to the airport was actually my god brother, somebody who I, I I knew my whole life. You know, basically like uh you know, grew grew up with him and um so he told my mom, you know, that I didn't commit suicide. But everybody else, mm-hmm. you know, for at least that first two weeks. You know, <clears throat> yeah, that one lady they were interviewing, they she said when she found out that you'd committed suicide or saw the article or something, she was instantly like no way! Wait a second. This guy could never kill himself. He's too much of a sociopath. <laughs> yeah, that's my girl. That's my girl, Marcy. Yeah. <laughs> she knew me pretty well, though. But uh, yeah, but um, yeah. So that w- that was like the whole suicide thing, and then um, 
like the reason I even became top fifteen, it's 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 like fucked up too <clears> because <throat> there was this dude named Henry Hudson. For my case, he was the assistant U.S. attorney, like during my case. So I mean, I, I don't know. I wasn't privy to what was going on inside the U.S. attorney's office, but you know, in retrospect and kind of looking at everything and how it happened, this dude could have been like the driving factor in my case. Like I said, I can't say that, you know, unequivocally or whatever, but, you know, I'm just like, you know, making assumptions on, on everything that happened. So this dude could have been like Henry Hudson. He could have been like the driving factor in my case for whatever reason. You know, he wanted to bust some white LSD marijuana guys, you know, for whatever reason. I don't know. Maybe he never got high. Maybe he had a bad trip. I don't know. Maybe they wouldn't give him any acid at college. I don't know. Who knows? But then... As soon as I disappear, this dude transfers to the U.S. Marshal's office in Northern Virginia. And he becomes the head of the U.S. Marshal's office. So he makes like this, you know, lateral transfer like within, you know, government, you know, mm-hmm. within, within law enforcement for the federal government. So he does all the paperwork to make me top 15 U.S. Marshals. Because, dude, I was a first-time nonviolent offender, dude. I mean, are you serious? Like a first time nonviolent, even when I got caught, like some of the marshals, they're like, how are you top 15? Like they're looking at me. They're like, and they basically told me like straight up, they were like, who did you piss off? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Cause that's how, that's how fucking shit works. You know? How do you think it happened? Who do you think you pissed off? I pissed that fucking dude, Harry, Harry Hudson. Hudson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's who I fucking pissed off. He was, a, like, you know, from everything I can see that I pieced together, you know, over the years, he was a driving factor in my case. He was the one that was pushing it. When I took off, it put, like, a black mark on his record. He took offense at that. He took it personal. He went to the U.S. Marshal's office, made me a top 15 fugitive, when I shouldn't have never been a top 15 fugitive. There was no reason for me to be a top 15 fugitive except that I pissed this motherfucker off, Right? Then when I got caught, he gets a feather in his hat, and you're not going to believe where this dude is now. (laughs) He's a fucking Fourth Circuit appeals court judge in Richmond, Virginia, for the feds. All right? So, look, if you look at everything in this country, like, if you look at our judicial system and prosecutors... And like, you know, how all that, okay, you guys know Rudy Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. He was the prosecutor from the Gotti case, the John Gotti case in the 80s. So everything in this country, in the, in the judicial branch, is based like on making a big case. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you advance by winning big cases. You don't advance by doing the right thing. You no. don't advance by advocating justice. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't advance. There's no incentive for doing the right thing. There's the only incentive is money and moving up the ladder, right? Yeah, and and they do that by having these big media cases. So basically, this dude, Henry Hudson, blew my case up into something it wasn't. You know, not to say whatever, I broke the law. You know, I should have been punished, but I should have got like fucking five years in the state. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So he blew me up into this big fucking drug kingpin, you know, took it one step further, blew me up into this top 15 fucking fugitive. And then, you know, in his career, his judicial law enforcement career, he capitalized Mm -hmm. 
right off that shit. That's why, like, like sometimes I, I just tell people, like, okay, yeah, I was in prison, and I'm not saying there's some fucked up people in prison. There's people that belong in prison. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'll be the first to say that. You know, violent people do belong in prison. You know, but you got a lot of people that don't belong in prison. But <clears throat> there's just so many cases, especially like when we look at the war on drugs in retrospect, where these people like this supposedly doing the right thing. They're the fucking most evil motherfuckers, man. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And this dude is a fucking fourth circuit U.S. appeals court judge. So this dude is like one step down from the Supreme Court, man. That's how powerful this motherfucker is. You know? Like I say, I talk shit about him on a lot of podcasts, so he hasn't sent nobody after me yet, but fuck him, you know? Whatever. Send your fucking dude. You know, I, I'm just that type of dude. You know, I'm like, whatever. Yeah. I'm going to say what I want. If they want to come and kill me, come and kill me. He needs to uh, He needs to take some acid or some mushrooms or something. <laughs> I'm saying, you know, and, uh, and really my, my dream, my dream is to eventually have like a, uh, you know, like a big scripted series or like a big Hollywood movie. And, and I want to fucking, like, portray, like, this m- evil motherfucker for the person he is. Like, he'll be the main really? protagonist. Yeah, and, and I just want to show, and I'm going to use his real name and everything, you know. I mean, I would, I don't know, maybe they'll want to change his name to Lawyers, who knows. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I want to, this dude should be exposed, man. Because he's sitting up there like he's this fucking righteous, fucking law-abiding person. And he basically made his career off of fucking my blood, you know, not my literal blood, but, you know, my blood and, and having to go to prison and all that, you know. And you, I'm not the only one. I'm not saying I'm the only one. I mean, but that's what he does. You know, these people, that's what they do in, in law enforcement and the judiciary in this country. They step on other people, make them out worse to be they are. And, you know, if anybody, any other country does it, they criticize it. But they do the same thing to us. And they prop themselves up on, on our backs. Right. You know, so, I mean, to me, you know, that's just my own personal thing. But I, I think those dudes are fucking evil as fuck. The DEA, evil as fuck. You know what I'm saying? The CIA, they're good people, right? Fuck, no. <laughs> so like what, I say, I don't really want to talk about the CIA. Cause they, they, just <laughs> might, they just might come kill me. <laughs> what was it like when you finally got caught for the last time? Like, what, what? Describe the scenario. Did you get like your doors kicked in? Like what? How did that? Yeah, go I was down? actually I was in this um, Econo Lodge in St. Louis, right by the airport, and and I was actually waiting, man. I, I had like I had like twenty pounds of pot, and I had this dude, Columbia, you know, like one of my distributors. I mean, his name was Dave. I won't say his last name, but his name was Dave. So I'm waiting for Dave to come down and get this 20 pounds because then as soon as he brings me the money, he's up in Columbia. You know, that's where Mizzou, University of Mizzou, Missouri mm-hmm. is at. So he, he sold for me up there. He, he was a big volume dealer for me. And um, he like I told him, I'm like, dude, I got this fucking 20 pounds. You know, this was after I, I you know, I had got wretched. I knew they were matching up my prints. I knew I need to get the fuck out of here. I knew the clock was ticking. So, I you know, I was like, dude. I'm going to give you all this shit for like $500 less a pound than I normally charge you. Just I need all cash. So he's like, okay, let me talk to everybody. I'm going to get it together. So he's actually getting it together. He's actually supposed to come down like that morning, like around 10 or 11, you know, and bring me the cash. And then I'm going to like fuck off, 
right? But, you know, I didn't know everything that's going on behind the scenes. You know, the marshals are tracking me, and I was top 15 U.S. marshals list and all this. So I, I have no idea none of this stuff is happening behind the scenes. So 6 o'clock in the morning, I'm in this fucking Econo Lodge. And, and I'm already, you know, I'm like, I know the clock is ticking. I know I need to get the fuck out of here. You know, I can, like, feel it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because when you're in situations like that, like, you can feel that shit, dude. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just like, you know, it's like the walls fucking closing yeah. in on you, man. Like, you feel that shit, you know? Even though I didn't know, like, I didn't wasn't cognizant of everything that was happening. But, you know, like, your body, your mind, you can sense that shit. So, uh, yeah, they fucking bust in, dude. The, the, the federal marshals, man, they bust in, like, a, like probably like 6 o'clock in the morning. You know what I'm saying? They fucking... It's just, fuck. it's like fucking three of them. It's not even no local law enforcement. Like, they're just fucking basically scouting me out themselves. Like, you know, a lot of things people don't know about these law enforcement guys, but, like, these dudes are as much cowboys as a lot of the drug dealers. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people don't realize that, but, I mean, these motherfuckers are cowboys. Like, they're fucking, they're basically scoping me out. They don't have no local law enforcement. They don't have no backup. You know, it's just, it's like three of them. You know, they fucking come in. You know, They're, they're going to do whatever they want to grab you. Yeah, so they fucking come in. They fucking get me. They find the weed. You know, I have a little bit of money. And, um, you know, actually, you know, to answer your question, I mean, it, it was in a lot of ways, it was a relief. Because, you know, I was, I mean, I was constantly, dude, I had all these different IDs. And it's like you got to, like, school yourself, man. It's like, okay, boom, like I take out this fucking ID today. And I, I got I would have a process in my mind. I'd be like, okay, well, I'm fucking uh, Jacob Birchfield today. And I'd be like, okay, Jacob Birchfield, born on this date. You know, this social security number, live at this address. Because, you know, if somebody ever pulls you over or you, you get addressed by a cop, you have to know that shit. Like, yeah. it's you. Yeah. Right. So I would do that. And so every day I'm fucking, you know, I might do it for like a week. You know, I'd be this guy for this week. You know, and that, that shit wears on you, man. And then it also wears on you... Uh, I mean, I'm meeting people all the time, you know, I'm, I'm meeting people, you know, friends, you know, some people I like, some people I don't like, you know, especially, you know, meeting girls and I mean, you can't be yourself, man. You got to have like this backstory Mm. and none of it is true. And then, you know, you got to constantly like, remember like what you told him or what you told him or, you know, how these backstories connect or how they disconnect. You know, because you don't want to fucking, you know, just as a basic premise, you don't want to fucking people think, oh, well, he's full of shit. He's a liar. You know what I'm saying? Nobody would want to be considered that. So, uh, you know, just trying to coordinate, like, all this stuff in my fucking mind. I mean, that's a lot of fucking, that's intense shit. You know what I'm saying? And plus, you know, I, I mean, I'm not going to lie, too. I was fucking probably smoking weed like crazy, you know, drinking like crazy to handle, you know, whatever stress or whatever. But, you know, it's all, like, mental stress mm-hmm. that I put on myself because of my situation. So, um, yeah, when they caught, when I got caught, you know, I like, I told them like, you know, I didn't try to lie and say, you know, they're like, you're this, you're Seth. I'm like, yeah, I'm Seth. Cool. Whatever you got me, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it, it, it was, it was, it was kind of like a, a relief, but, uh, you know, at the same time to show you like, um, you know, I know I keep hammering this about the evilness of these motherfuckers, but like, you know, they're looking through all my shit. They find the weed, they find the guns or not guns. I didn't have any guns. So they find the weed, they find the money, they find all the IDs. And then like, they're asking me, they're like, you got guns, you got guns, you know, cause any, if, you know, if you're, if you're involved with the feds, like any, you get a gun for any criminal act in the feds, a gun is like five extra years. So like these motherfuckers, they don't give a fuck. They just want to give you time. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? That's like their job is to get catch you and give you time. 
you know, the more time, the better. Mm -hmm. So they're like, they're like, no guns, no guns. I'm like, no, nah, I don't have no fucking guns. You know, I'm like, I never had a gun. I, I don't deal with people where I need a gun. I'm not that type of fucking criminal, you know? So like the one Marshall dude, like he takes his fucking gun out and like he throws it in my bag. And then he's like, oh, he's like, what's this? He's like, you got a fucking gun. You know what I'm saying? I mean, obviously he didn't put that gun on me. You know, he picked it back up. But I'm saying that's just like shows you like the mentality. Like, like, why would you even do that, dude? Like, like, you're, Wait, that's what, how, what do you mean? He threw it in your bag just to like joke with you or what? Yeah, yeah, just to dude. fuck with you. Yeah, to fuck with <clears throat> me, dude. But they didn't charge you with it. No, no, but I'm saying, but I'm saying, like, what type of person would do some shit like that? Like, you think that shit is funny? Right. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I I know what I'm looking at, dude. I'm looking at fucking twenty to life. That's why I fled. You know what I'm saying? It's a fucking height of the war on drugs. The laws are fucked up. Mm -hmm. You know, I know what the fuck I'm looking at. And you're going to fucking try to play me like that. And you're like a law enforcement. You know, you're supposed to be the good guy. Good guys don't do shit like that. You know what I'm saying? And especially like, look, I'm not resisting arrests. I'm telling you who I, I am. You know, I'm not fucking trying to go out like fucking Billy the Kid or no shit like that. Or Bonnie the Clyde, Bonnie and Clyde, whatever. If you're a criminal and you're trying to go out like buying the Clyde, whatever, law enforcement, do what you got to do. That's your job. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying in these other situations, man, you know what I'm saying? You, you know, to, and to do shit like that, it just shows like their whole, that whole culture, man, is inherently fucking evil when it comes to the war on drugs. And like, I think like our whole judicial system right now, look, they created a couple things that is the reason why our law enforcement is how it is today, right? First, they did this thing called qualified immunity, where basically like a cop or a law enforcement or a, a, a federal agent, they can do whatever they want to do under the guise of their job and get away with it. Right. Isn't that the law that says that they can't get sued for their... Yeah, it's called, that's what, that's what right. qualified immunity means. Right. <clears throat> so as long as they do it under the color or the auspice, suspicious of their job they can do whatever they can fucking just come in and clock you in the fucking face mm -hmm. beat the fuck out of you right isn't that all changing now though i mean i think you know, there's, there, some there's states, more there's more discussions there's so, some I mean, states where i think some of these laws are changing and let's get it's being I mean, challenged it, it, it needs to I, I think it's more like it's been challenged it's been talked about i don't know how much it's been changed yeah stuff is slowly changing for the better but i'm saying this is one of the, the worst things that has, has made us why basically we've become a police state right now Right? The second thing is the forfeiture, dude. Right? Like the forfeiture, like, dude, you can literally, and I'm not saying it doesn't, ha it happens to some white people, but it doesn't happen to white people as much. But people of color, like African American or, you know, Spanish, you know, brown people, they bust and pull them over, find a joint, and they take their fucking car, dude. Mm -hmm. I mean, it happens all the fucking time, dude. I mean, probably more in the 90s than it does now. But, you know, I mean, dude, and look, think about this. And, and I know you guys have probably seen this even, even down here, right? Okay, so they got a big bust. They get the fucking money. And I'm not saying, I mean, some cops are corrupt. They might put that money in their pocket. You know what I mean? But you know, more times than not, they, they're not putting the money in their pocket. You know, sometimes they are. But, you know, more times than not, they're not. But all that money is going to their department. And then you see, like, the head of the department, the fucking sheriff, is driving this big fucking, 
GMC, fucking Yukon, fucking Denali all fucking loaded out like a $150,000 fucking car as his company car. Because they use the forfeiture, forfeiture proceeds, the drug money to do that. So I'm saying if that's not corrupt, dude, I mean, that's fucking corrupt on its face. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because that dude is driving around that car. That's his car. Why does a sheriff have to drive around a fucking hundred? And I, I'm sure you guys have seen it down here because this is kind of like some country boy shit. I see it up in Missouri. Like up in Missouri, like some of the police departments or the sheriffs, they have like these big fucking four-wheel drive fucking oh, police yeah. trucks, dude. Like outrageous. Like some mm-hmm. shit you would see on fucking monster truck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they drive and they got all their flags and it says fucking St. Charles County Police. Right. And I know you see that shit down in Florida because oh, yeah. it's some country boy shit down here too. Yeah. Right? Dude, that is outrageous. Where do you think they get that money? The taxpayers didn't give them that fucking money. So you're saying that the money that they can they, they can seize. that they seize in these drug operations, whether they raid a house or somewhere like that, they keep that to buy trucks. They keep it for their department to buy whatever they need. So the department gets to keep that money. Yeah, they keep really. That money. Yeah, who that? Whatever the seizing, whoever seizes it, you know, like even if the feds are involved. That money goes back to the local agency. Hmm. You know, the feds might take a percentage, but you know, the feds don't need money. The feds fucking yeah. print money. Dude. They got the money. Right. The feds print fucking money. They don't right. fucking need no money. So look, so, all right, so those two things. So you got qualified immunity and you got forfeiture. And then the third thing, so you got, you got basically law enforcement in this country. They can do whatever they want to do and get away with it. They fucking basically. Go after fucking drug dealers just to get money. You know what I'm saying? That That's like, they don't even care about what's right or wrong or the laws or, you know, what laws are being broken or, or who's getting fucked over. Yeah. They're just going for the money. <clears throat> that's what it's turned into. They're just going for the money because of the forfeiture laws. And the third thing that has turned our law enforcement in this country to this big, bloated fucking entity that's fucking feeds on itself and is as evil as fuck, right? The third thing is the fucking informants. Because look, these dudes are detectives. Like you got detectives like in law enforcement or, or agents or investigators. They don't investigate nothing, dude. All they do is threaten people with time and people tell them whatever they want here. Mm. They don't investigate. So they have, they have no investigative skills. They're not fucking detectives. They can't figure fucking nothing out. The only type of bus they want is a bus that gets some money for their department. And they have uh, no accountability because, you know, if they arrest you and you say, man, fuck you, pig, they can punch you in your fucking face mm-hmm. and bust your fucking teeth out. Yeah. And say whatever. And, and they don't have no criminal case. They don't have nothing. Nothing happens to them. A lot of times they don't even get suspended. You know what I'm saying? So that's why. We're at the point where we are right now, you know, with law enforcement. And, and, like, and look, I'm going to break this down for you even further. All right, see, look, we're all fucking white, right? So a lot of the cops are white. So, you know, sometimes, I mean, they could be an asshole to us, but sometimes they can look at us too and be like, oh, you know, he kind of looks like my cousin or my brother or my family member, right? So they might be a little bit more lax with us, you know what I'm saying? But think... Like, but they still, I'm not saying they beat the shit out of fucking white people. You know, if you get lippy with them, they'll beat the fuck out of you. They don't give a fuck. You know, they can't do nothing. But think about like the black and brown people, dude. 
Like, they don't give a fuck. They treat those motherfuckers like subhuman and get away with it every fucking day. Well, I mean, you see it way more nowadays because of the internet and social media. And I'm yeah, sure yeah. they got, I'm sure, you know, cops definitely got away with it way more in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s. But with like the way things are changing now, the tables have kind of turned. Now, if you're a cop and you're a piece of shit, it's easier for you to get, be exposed. No, true, true. And, true. and, you know, being, I mean, think of like who, who would want to be a cop? Who would want to be a person who has to go into these places and have to be constantly worried about your own life? You know, pulling, I mean, just, just imagine like pulling over a car at night and, Ask him to roll down the window. I mean, the amount of cops that get shot. I mean, you're you're, wor- you're worried about your own life. I don't think. I mean, I can see that to a certain extent, but I, I I think I don't I don't think it's. I mean, basically, man, people are people. Yeah. If you treat somebody like a person and give them respect, you know, because dude, I've been around cops, prison guards, everything. You know, if they, if they treat you all right, you know, you treat them all right. Whatever you got to do your job, you know, I got to do my job, especially if you're a criminal. But I mean, I could say some of it. I mean, every everything in life goes both ways. But look, I'm, I'm going to throw something else at you. And this is what law enforcement does. All right. If you're law enforcement, and think, most people, when they do their job, they just want to do the easiest job possible, right? So if you're in law enforcement, right, who would you rather go bust? Unless you're like some gung-ho fucking super marine cop. And there are all those type of dudes. <laughs> There's those type of things, but you know, they're not, they're like, you know, one out of a hundred, but who would you rather go bust? Would you rather go bust the fucking meth fucking addicts or cocaine fucking cartel members with fucking machine guns and shit? Or would you go rather go bust the fucking kids smoking marijuana or the fucking marijuana, nonviolent marijuana dealer? Mm. Look, you know. What are the what are the most arrests for fucking drugs in our country every year, dude? And still now, and it's legal in half the states. Marijuana is still the number. One. Marijuana has been their biggest cash cow, dude. Look, at one time, is I don't. Marijuana still the number one. Yeah, dude. I'm telling the number you, number one thing they, people they, are arrested they, for in the U.S. Yeah, they don't want to let it go, man. They don't want to let it go. I mean, it is changing, but we're in this process now. Like, it might take another five to ten years, dude. I mean, people are still catching cases for fucking weed, dude. It's fucking crazy, dude. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they're not getting the same severe punishments. Yeah. You know, but it, it's still fucking insane. And especially, you know, if you're fucking well, I mean, black it's what or brown. The, it's what, I don't, it's the system, right? It's what they're incentivized to do. It's a, yeah. it's a, it starts at the top. It doesn't yeah. start at the bottom. I mean, no, it starts you, at the top. when you build a system that's based, that incentivizes people to, you know, meet a quota, you know, to, to make yeah. more money and to raise more money for your department that, and to that's get a why promotion. I, that's like my whole point. My whole point, like everything I brought up, and like it all stems from my case because I see this all and whatever I see this all from a color view because I, I see it all from the point of my case and what happened to me. But as all that has happened to me, I've seen a lot of other stuff. So that's I mean that's been my whole point. It's evil, man. It's inherently evil. Like the whole system, the way it's made. I'm saying there's a lot of people, individual people. They're just doing their job. You know, I don't blame the individuals. You know, I mean, if you're a bad apple, you're a bad apple. I mean, the truth is going to come out in the wash. Mm-hmm. You know, but the way the whole system, you know, from the war on drugs down and law enforcement, 
is fucking inherently evil. And right. I know a lot of people in law enforcement, dude. I've like for my work, dude, my documentary work. I've I've interviewed fucking retired DEA. I've interviewed retired FBI. You know ATF. Like I say, I don't got no beef with these dudes. Whatever they did their job. You know whatever they thought they were doing the right thing. You know I I can't blame them. Whatever circumstance they were in in life, right? But sometimes like even. I talk to these dudes and like, especially these DEA dudes. And I'm just like, like they cannot admit that the war on drugs was wrong. Really? No, a lot of them. I mean, some of them have come out and said, but a lot of them, you know, the rank and file, you know, cause I mean, whatever, if you spend 20, 30 years of your life doing something, dude, you're not just going to be like, you know, it takes big balls to be like, Oh yeah, it was fucked up. Mm. You know? So a lot of them, and like I say, it goes it to me, this whole thing, it goes back to like like all America. Like, dude, I'm still America. I'm, I love my country. I'm not gonna go. You know, I, they put me in prison for 21 fucking years. You know, like I'm like, you know, to me, it's like the Matrix, right? Like, I got out. I'm like, plug me back into the Matrix. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the prison fucking sucks, dude. That shit's like the netherworld of corruption and violence. What kind of prison were you in? I was in like, uh, I did 12 years in medium highs, and I did nine years in lows. Okay. So you know, basically, in the feds, the medium highs, they call them gladiator schools. You know, a lot of fights. You know, in the pen, I wasn't there in the penitentiaries. The penitentiaries, that's like the highs. That's where they say, like, boys. State penitentiaries? Well, the, it's a federal penitentiary. Oh, a federal penitentiary. Yeah. But what they say in the federal penitentiaries, like, they say boys fight, men kill. You know, like, you don't fight. Mm-hmm. Like, if you got a beef, like, you go stab the motherfucker 60 times. You know what I'm saying? So that's how that means, like, boys fight, men kill. I was in what they call the gladiator schools, the medium highs, where, like, you know, basically you got to fight. Like, mm-hmm. if you don't fight. You know, then whatever, you know, you can be fucking starting out somebody taking your commissary and end up getting raped. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's just how it is, you know. And then I did my last nine years in the lows. And the lows, I mean, it's pretty tame, you know what I'm saying? I mean, shit happens. But A lot of white-collar criminals in there? Uh, white-collar crime is more like in the camps. That's like the minimum. I could never go to the camps. I was always behind a fence because I was a, a top 15 fugitive, you know, so I could never go out to the camp. You know, I would never yeah. get minimum security. But, uh, you know, the lows, you got, like, the people that fuck up at the camps. So it's a lot of min- minimum security dudes, you mm-hmm. know, that fucked up. And you got, a, you know, a lot of, you even got dudes that started the penitentiaries, but they're, you know, they did 20 years there at the end of their bid. They don't want no problem. Mm-hmm. And then you got a lot of dudes, you know, that are just short timers. You know, they're coming in, they got, like, two, three, four, five years. Yeah. You know? A lot of informants, you know, there. But, you know, it's funny in prison. Because even, like, when you're at a low and you know there's a lot of informants, like, nobody, everybody's like, oh, no, I didn't snitch. He's a snitch. I'm not a snitch. It's, like, crazy, dude. It's, like, you know, because nobody wants to wear that in there. You know, nobody's going to wear that shit. Right. You know, I I found out, like, all the time that I did, it basically came down to it. Like, usually the person that was going trying to say who was the snitches, like, usually you had to, like, look at them. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, like, why, like, they're deflecting. Yeah. Right. It's like, why are you pointing out? You know, some of some of the dudes like that, they're just crazy and hate snitches. You know, but you know, a lot of times, you know, I mean, but that's maybe like one out of ten. You know, like the other nine times out of ten, it's usually somebody deflecting. Hmm. Yeah, that's a it's a it's a crazy subject that always gets brought up when you go to prison or you get caught with you know on a with a big crime is like the first thing you think of is you know you get offered a plea deal are you going to snitch are you not going to snitch and that's like the number one question people 
ask you when you're when you're locked up like they ask you about your crime they try to like poke and prod little questions figure out more about your story is he a snitch is he not a snitch when when i came in you got to show paperwork so when i came in in 93 i came in in 93 i went to sci manchester it's a medium high in kentucky right i got 25 fucking years and this is like 93 so when i came in you know a lot of the people are still under the old laws from the 80s so I come in with 25, and I'm like this little kid. I look like a college kid, right? I'm like fucking, you know, 22 years old, man. I weigh maybe like 185, you know what I'm saying? And fucking clean cut, everything. Look like I should be in college. And the dudes are like all the cons, you know, they're looking at me. They're like, like, who the fuck did you kill? How did you get 25 years? You know, because still, the, you know, they just started those laws like in 89. So, you know, a lot of the dudes aren't used to people. You know, like for, for, for my crime, what I did, like in the 80s, it might have been like, you know, maybe 10 years maximum, and it was parolable, you know, but then after 89, when they made the new laws, you know, mandatory minimums, the sentencing guidelines, you had to do 85% of your time, so there was, like, no parole, so, you know, like, on 25, I had to do, basically, you know, almost 23, the only reason I got in 21 is because I took this drug program for 10 months, a 500-hour therapeutic drug program, and I got a year off my sentence, you know, right at the end. But, uh, yeah, dude, when, when, you, when I went in back then, it's like they call it a paperwork party. Like, you go in, like, wherever you're from, like, your homeboys come to you, like the other white people. You know, it's all, it's everything's ethic and race, and they're race-based. You know, you don't got, like, black dudes coming to you asking to see your paperwork. You know, your own people, white people come to you. They want, you got to show your paperwork. You got to show that you're not a snitch. You got to show that you're not a chomo, you know, child molester. And you got to show that you're not a rapist. Because if you're any of those fucking thing, it's like your own people, your own homeboys. They're going to check you in, dude. They're either going to beat the fuck out of you and leave you there. Or they're going to tell you, you're going to be like, look, you need to roll up, dude. You got to check in the hole. You ain't walking on this compound. You know, and that's how shit goes. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So. What, what, ha- what, what would happen if you're like, yeah, I was a snitch. I fucking ratted out this guy, this guy, this guy. I cut all their throats, and I saved 25 years of my life. Now what? They're going to fucking beat the fuck out of you right there. They're going to check you in, dude. They're going to roll you up. You're really? You're going to walk on that compound? Fuck no. You know? But look, I have seen, I've seen a few cases where there's been like some fucking tough snitch motherfuckers. But, you know, in the end, they always, they always lose. There was, uh, I was in uh, Beckley, West Virginia. Right, it was a medium high second joint I was at, and it was uh it w- it was a pretty rough and tumble joint, man. You know, it was like like they were always hitting the deuces. Like what I when I say they hit the deuces, that's like if there's a fight or a disturbance, like you know the cop hits the body alarm and like all the cops go running, you know, like the cavalry, mm. you know, to, to to quell the disturbance. So that's what hit the deuces mean. So, I mean, they were hitting the deuces, like, all the fucking time. Like, you always see the cops running. So it's a fight here, a fight here, you know, whatever. Sometimes multiple fights at the same time. So um, there's this one dude. I, I don't know his name. Big dude. Country boy. Had, like, a cocaine case. He was a West Virginia country boy. Right? So he's on the fucking compound. Dudes know he's hot. Right? So fucking... The uh, like some of the West Virginia dudes, you know, they say, "Oh, this motherfucker's hot." Like they show the newspaper articles about him, whatever. And uh, what does that mean? He's hot. Like he's a snitch. He's hot. Oh, yeah, he's okay. hot. So um, they try to check him in, 
he said, I ain't checking him. He beats the fuck out of him. The snitch beats the fuck out of the dude. So, <laughs> like, they end up, they get beat up. They're in the hole. You know what I'm saying? They're in the hole because they got the shit beat up. Because what happens, like, they're, like, let's say me or you get in a fight and I beat the fuck out of you and you're all marked up. So the cops, when they see you marked up, they're going to lock you up basically for your protection. Right. And if you don't say what happened, like, you, you'll say some shit. Like, if you're a stand-up con, you'll be like, oh, I, I slipped and fell. Mm-hmm. In the shower or some shit. Right. But they put you in the hole because they're investigating. They want to know what happened. <clears throat> you know, so so this snitch, he beats these fucking dudes up. You know, who supposedly, like, the shot callers for the West Virginia car. You know, who, whatever, they weren't that tough. They couldn't even uh, check their own snitch out of the yard. Mm-hmm. So he beats them up. They go to the hole. But, you know, they don't say nothing, whatever. So this dude's, like, still in the yard. So, you know, uh, you know, the authorities don't know what's going on. But, like, all the white boys know what's going on. Right? So then fucking... So then, like, some other white boys on the yard, like, they go to the rest of the West Virginia dudes, and they're like, what the fuck, man? They're like, clean your fucking car, dude. This is your responsibility. You need to get this motherfucker off the yard. So then, like, some more West Virginia dudes go, or they can't do it or whatever. So then, like, this, like, was going on, dude, for, like, fucking about three weeks. You know, and this dude was like, fuck you. Like, anybody came at him, he beat the fuck out of him. Like, he was a tough motherfucker, but he was a snitch. So, uh, eventually the fucking California dudes, usually like in prison for the white boys, usually the California dudes are like the toughest dudes. It goes with the Spanish too. Usually like the, like they call them the Serenos, the the Mexican dudes, like they're under the Mexican mafia. They're usually like the fucking most thorough and usually the California, the Mexicans and the, and the whites fucking ally. Really? um, The the Mexicans are the toughest? Yeah. They're the most vicious. Why is that? Because if, like, they got a saying in there, like, if 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 you got a beef with one Mexican, then you got to fight all of them. That's how and they And it's bro- not like that with any of the other races? It can be, but, you know, not a lot sometimes, you know, because sometimes it's like, uh, you know, it's supposed to be everything is, like, unified. Like, okay, we're white, we stand together. But a lot of times, you know, like, uh, I'll have a beef, and you'll be like, man, fuck him, I don't fuck with him. Or fuck him, he's a piece of shit. You know, or he's like a fucking junkie shit, or maybe he fucking owes me money for some heroin, so fuck him. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like shit like that comes mm-hmm. into play. So eventually with this fucking West Virginia fucking tough guy fucking snitch, the fucking California dudes fucking cornered him out on the fucking yard with weapons <laughs> and fucking beat the fuck out of him. And, you know, but it was like a three-week process, so this dude was basically on the yard for three weeks. Wow. You know, basically, like you said. Yeah, I'm a fucking snitch. Fuck you. Wasn't you Whitey Bulger it. a snitch? Yeah, yeah. Whitey Bulger was a snitch. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he got he got, he got killed. Yeah, he, he got, got killed. killed. Didn't he get killed? Didn't they put a hit on on him because yeah. he had some sort of government? Or he yeah, was no, part he of got, some conspiracy, right? So, so what Whitey Bulger's story was? He was in a protection. There, there's a joint down in Florida. It's like it's like a known protection yard. So he was he was down there for a long. It's a uh, Coleman. Coleman, oh, that's yeah. where Matt Cox went. Yeah. All right, so they got two Coleman's. They got a Coleman one and a Coleman two. But one of those yards is a protection yard. That's like any of the dudes. It's because it, it's a high. It's a penitentiary. So any of the dudes that um like can't walk mainline. Can't walk mainline. That means like uh mainline is like the prison yard. Okay. That's like the mainline. Like you're walking the mainline. Yeah. You know, like you're out on the yard. You're in general population. That's what mocking mainline means. You're in general population. So, you know, 
if you can't walk mainline because, you know, maybe you're a snitch or you got beefs or people are trying to kill you or, you know, a gang has marked you for death, then you're, you can't walk mainline. Like the prison authorities won't let you. Right. To protect you. Yeah. So they won't let you. Even if you say you want to, you know, they usually don't let you. So this is what happened with Whitey Bulger. So Whitey Bulger's he's in Coleman. He's in it's a it's a known protection yard. He's in there. He's walking mainline because it's a protection yard. You know, there's a bunch of dudes you know that can't go any other place because they'll probably get killed. And um, but then he did something like I don't know something. He had something with some nurse or you know something that he pissed off the staff, pissed off the warden, you know, or he got. You know, whatever, sassy. You know, he was an old motherfucker anyhow. So, you know, whatever. He pissed off the staff. I don't know who or what. It might have been from medical. So it went up. So they were like, and he was defiant about it. You know, he was like, oh, fuck you, whatever. I'm Whitey Bulger, fuck you. And so they were like, okay, we got something for you, Mr. Whitey Bulger. We're going to transfer you to a fucking prison where motherfuckers want to kill you. Because you're a fucking rat. I mean, and, and none of this is said. It's all unspoken. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the Bureau of Prison staff, like in their, you know, whatever meetings or something, they might say that shit. But, you know, I mean, they're never going to admit to that shit. You know, so um, they transfer him. And then Whitey Bulger, being Whitey Bulger, you know, even though the, you know, because when you go to the yard, anytime you go to the yard, like they ask you, they're, they're like, you know, they ask you if you want, they just put you on the yard. Like you can go in PC if you want. Nobody has to go on any yard. If you request PC protective custody, they will put you, that's your job to protect your life. And especially when you're dealing with these penitentiaries, because that's where you got the real fucking killers. And especially when you got somebody like Whitey Bulger, who's this high profile fucking dude. It's been in fucking movies where he's a fucking informant. Everybody fucking knows. No, but Whitey Bulger was the type of dude. He was like, his whole thing was like, I'm not an informant. I paid for information. They worked for me. But, you know, anytime with law enforcement or or criminals, especially a criminal like Whitey Bulger that had such a long reign, anybody knows with common sense that information is going back and forth. He's giving the dude information about his enemies because it makes his life easier. And Mm. the the cop buses, you know, John Connolly was an FBI guy. So... So Whitey Bulger goes to this prison. It's it's actually uh, it's a West Virginia prison. I can't think of which one, but it, it I think it was a West Virginia penitentiary. So he goes to this prison, and um, like they basically tell him, you know, like you know, you fear for your life or whatever. You got any beasts with anybody? You know, can you go into the yard? And he's like, you know, Whitey Bulger's trying to pull. You know, he's old, but he's still like, I'm Whitey Bulger. I'm a tough guy. He's like, yeah, I can go in this fucking yard. And so the cops let him, you know, but I mean, they never should have let him. They, they knew better, but it was like, that's why they say that that whole thing. It was like a vendetta by the BOP. Like it's some, you know, high, you know, not like the normal cops, but like somewhere like at the regional office or the central office, they were like, man, fuck this dude. Let's let him get killed. Yeah. Let him fend for himself. That's the conspiracy. I mean, but you know, you can probably never prove it. I mean, they probably had investigations or whatever, but so, so they put them out, but you know, I mean, but whatever, I don't know. You think sometimes like these dudes, they're old, they're in bad health, you know, maybe, uh, they want to go out like that. I I don't know. Maybe, you Mm -hmm. know, they want to end their life. I mean, who knows what's going on in his mind, you know, or maybe he really thought I'm Whitey Bulger 
ain't nobody gonna do nothing to me. You know, he's in a fucking wheelchair. I don't know. Maybe he was yeah. fucking crazy. Maybe he did too much LSD. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so, the, that's uh, the that's what a lot of people say. He did too much LSD. Yeah. So I mean, he was in that MK Ultra program, right? You know, I used to, I used to and that write. was before he killed everybody, right? Yeah. When he, when he did his first bit in Alcatraz, you know, I, used to, I wrote. I used to write Whitey Bulger. Did you really? I was trying to get him to do a book. Really? Yeah. When he was in Coleman. Did he ever respond to you? He fucking wrote me a bunch of letters. Really? Yeah, I got a oh, bunch of letters. Cool. Dude, his writing is like fucking chicken scratch. Like, it's like the type of letters, like, you can barely fucking read. Like, you gotta, like, like it's work to read his letters. Yeah. Yeah, but I wrote him. I, I actually, I did I did a couple articles where I used some of uh, his words from his letters for this uh, site called Ozzy. And I actually, I had a dude on my site website guerrillaconvict.com he was in the West Virginia prison where Whitey Bulger got whacked and he wrote an article about it really yeah it's on it's on my website guerrillaconvict.com what did uh, you and Whitey Bulger talk about did you ask him about the LSD stuff yeah he he wrote he wrote some you know told me about that but I mean basically I was getting him I was trying to say like dude let me write your biography so he was telling me like little things, like he was telling me about that MK Ultra, and he was trying to tell me, you know, he's not a snitch, and he was trying to tell me, you know, how the prison's fucked up or what they do to him, like all his little petty grievances. Mm-hmm. He was like airing out to me. That was mostly what the letters consist of. He'd give me some history, but mostly, you know, is how fucked up his case was, and they railroaded him, you know, because a lot of those dudes. They get in there, especially the older dudes, they get life and they, they just get obsessed with these, like, they got like these three or four trigger things and they just can't let them go, you know, and then they just eat them up. Really? And that's all they can talk about. I mean, I think that happens to people a lot in life anyhow, but in there it's, it's intensified. Like when you're doing a life sentence around a whole bunch of violent people, you know, in there, in there it's like, I'm going to show you like what prison is like, like. You got to put this mask on. You got to put this every day. Like you got to wear this mask because it's, it's about to keep yourself safe. You got to keep people away. You got to think, make people think like you're crazy or you're violent or you're negative. So it's like, it's like almost like, like you, you make shit more than it is. Like, you know, like shit might happen to you, you know, or like maybe the fucking, they don't give you your transfers or the cop takes your tomato, you know, writes you some bullshit shot. So you fucking, you're like really, you know, uh, like demonstrative. You're like, man, fuck these motherfuckers, man. This is a fucking bullshit. Mm. You know, cause you're like, you, you, it's like you, you emanate fucking like negativity to like keep motherfuckers at bay and keep them arm's length, keep away from you. Cause all that shit is based on, it's based and built on negativity, man. And all prison is, it's like, Really, prison, it's a lot like law enforcement sometimes because you just kind of, uh, it's like you try to fucking step up on somebody else's back to make yourself look bit better. Hmm. You know? That's why, like, at the bottom of the prison hierarchy, you got, like, the snitches, you know, the chomos, you know, and the rapists. And, you know, all of us, solid cons, we're better than these motherfuckers. Yeah. So we, if, if we find out about them, we beat the shit out of them mm-hmm. and check them in the hole to make ourselves feel good. Right. You know, so it's, it's, it's just like, it's, it's the whole thing. I mean, it's just prison is like fucking like negativity. What are the prison guards like? Are there any 
prison guards who are happy with what they're doing? Are there any of them that are mean, there to make a difference and enjoy them, so enjoy their jobs, or are they just there? No, I wouldn't say that. You got you got the majority <clears throat> of prison guards are. I mean, they're pretty laid back, man. They they like tell you straight up. They'll be like, man, just let me do my eight hours. You know, I don't care what you do. Just you know, don't kill nobody. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Don't beat the fuck out of nobody. Don't make me right. do no paperwork. Don't make their, their job you hard. Know? So that's like nine out of ten or like that. And then you got like the one out of the ten is like the super cop. Like he wants to go above and beyond. Yeah. And bust you for fucking petty shit. Mm-hmm. You know, but a lot of them, like a lot of, a lot of the blocks, like look, tattooing is illegal. You can't tattoo, but a lot of cops, they don't give a fuck. They'll walk right by, check out the fucking tattoos and everything. <laughs> they don't give a fuck. You know what I'm saying? A lot of times, like even like, uh, like in there, they they call it politics. So it's like you know any drama or any type of situations. You know they call it politics. So you know like uh, you know like if you're a white boy and you do something fucking stupid, and then the other white boys we gotta fucking you know set you straight. You know which means we might have to take you in a cell and whoop your fucking ass. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if you did something stupid with some other races, because mm-hmm. in the other races they come to the white boy shot car or the white boy car, and what I mean the white boy car—that's like the group of white dudes. They call it a car, so they come, you know, to the leader of the white boy car, and they're like, "Yo, man, you gotta fucking, you know, discipline your dude. You know, he stepped out of line. He did this. You know, so then, and w- what they do, you do like a white dude will punish another white dude just to like avert. A race riot. Right. You know, because then they'll be like, okay, yeah, we punished him. You know, he stepped out of line. He did something stupid or, you know, whatever. You know, maybe some, uh, you know, stupid new dude in prison, you know, fucking use the N-word or something in front of a bunch of black dudes. And they're like, you know, the dudes aren't putting up with that shit. Right. You know what I'm saying? They'll be ready to fucking beat the fuck out of you. But, you know, that's, that's like the rules, like. Not in all prisons. I mean, some prisons, like county jail, it's not that. But when you're, like, on a prison yard, it's, like, the rules, like, you know, like, one race don't doesn't put their hands on another race because that can cause a race riot. Right. You know, because, like, like if, if a black dude beats up a Spanish dude, even if it's one-on-one fight, it was fair and everything or whatever, and all the Spanish dudes are going to be out on the fucking yard, dude. It's going to be fucking, mm-hmm. they're going to be ready, you know, they're going to be yeah. ready to fucking go to war, mm-hmm. you know, with shanks and fucking locks and socks and, you know, fucking cans of fucking tuna and fucking, you know, fucking socks, locks on fucking belts. Yep. You know, shit can get crazy in there like real quick. So, I mean, a lot of times you just do stuff, you know. Like, I, I'll, I'll give you a situation. Like, I, I told this, I've told this story to a lot of people. Like, maybe, like, we're in prison. Like, you're my celly. Like, we're cool. We're friends. Like, we kick it. We talk shit. We play whatever. We joke around, you know, in the cell when it's just me and you. Right? But then, you know, we go out to the yard and, like, you know, we're around this dude. He's, like, fucking Aryan Circle. You know, we're around fucking this dude he's like a dirty white boy you know we're around this dude he's like the leader of the fucking uh southern boys you know and then you know and then you want to fucking try to play or say something fly you know to make yourself look good you know to make yourself like you got one up on me or something you know in front of these guys and maybe like when we're in the cell you're my friend so i don't say shit i'm like okay whatever dude cool shut the fuck up 
You know what I'm saying? But you want to say that in front of other people, and then I got to fucking, you know, I don't even say nothing. I just fucking punch you in your fucking mouth. You know, because you can't make me look bad in front of these other people. That's going to, like, take my fucking respect from them. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then you're going to fucking tell me in the later, you get in the cell, you're going to be like, what the fuck, dude? Why'd you punch me in the mouth? And be like, dude, could you do some stupid shit? You can't jump out there. He's like, why well, say that shit in the cell? Okay, yeah, that's in the cell, dude. Me and you, we're cool. But you don't say that shit in front of these fucking dudes because then they're going to take that as a chink in my fucking armor and then my word isn't going to be shit. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> so, you know, it, it, that's just, that's like politics. That's right, politics. Right, right. So 21 years total, you said? Yeah, 21 years, yep. How did that change you when you got out? Did it, did it? Were I mean, you, shit. Were you a different person? I mean, it made me who I am today. I mean, basically, um, yeah, I, I would say it changed me. I mean, I would say, like, when I came in, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs, man. So, um, I mean, I've never been a violent person. I mean, I was I was never, like, a violent or malicious person. You know, I never, like, to get in fights, you know. But, I mean, now, I mean, like, I'm still not a violent person. But I can get violent if I need to get violent, you know. Like, I, I tell people all the time, look. I'm too old to fight, but I'm definitely too old to lose a fight. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, like, like, look, and I don't want to have no problem with anybody. You know, I'm going to try to walk away, whatever, but if a motherfucker shows you that you can't walk away, dude, I'm just going to get, I'm going to get as violent as possible, as quick as possible, and I'm going to inflict as much damage as I can with no warning, and then I'm just going to leave it alone. I'm going to, I'm going to bounce. You know what I'm saying? That's how you got to deal with situations like that. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I'm not a malicious person. So a malicious person, they might do that and get you down and and keep trying to fuck you up. You know, that's like a malicious, evil person. They get off on shit like that. And there's a lot of people like that. I've seen people like that. But, you know, me, myself, I've learned if there's a situation like that, you just got to inflict as much damage as you can. You don't let anybody know it's coming. And then, like I say, then, you know, it's, it's, it's like the, uh, Fight or flight. A lot of times, if, if you do something real quick, you can, like, shock a person. And then while they're shocked, you know, laying on the floor or their face is bloody, their nose is broken, then you just fucking, you know, out here you bounce. I mean, in prison, obviously, you can't bounce. There's yeah. it's a fishbowl. Right. You know, but, you know, still, I, I went with the same premise in there. Like, in, when I was in there, if there was some type of beef, I would just handle it right there. I didn't care where. I didn't care if we are in the chow hall. I didn't care if staff's around. If you disrespect me or you did something, I would handle it right then and there. I wouldn't ask any questions. And then, you know, it's it's just better because then, like, if something, you know, because in there, like, stuff, people let stuff festers and it'll be like a beef between two people and then it turns into this big thing, mm. you know, with all these other people involved. And then you might have to end up stabbing somebody or something. Yeah. Gets messy fast. Yeah. So, you know, I, I've always, you know, I learned in there, you know, handle your business handle it right there, you know, just do it quickly and get it over with, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? And then, like I say, man, I, I've got a fight, so I mean, you know, like I say, it's not like I'm some tough dude, I've fucking, you know, my nose has been broken five times, you know what I'm saying? My shit got split right here, my shit got split right here, and my shit got split right here, so, you know what I mean? If you fight, you're going to take some losses, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Ain't nobody fucking... Gotta take your lumps. Yeah, you you know, whatever. But, you know, yeah. you just keep it moving. You don't make it too serious, you know, or you don't, like, you know, just because somebody beat your ass, now you gotta go fucking stab them. I mean, that's fucking stupid. Yeah. You know? So what are you doing now? So now that you're out, you're uh, you're working on a new a new project? Yeah, so, um, you know, I started writing books in prison. 
Yeah. How many books did you write? 22. 22 books. While you were locked up. Yeah. Wow. Gangster books, all gangsters, nonfiction, true crime, mostly African-American gangsters. You know, I, I wrote some prison stuff too, but uh, yeah, I started a journalism career. You know, I, I mean, that's basically, I do true crime. I do uh, like prison gangs. You know, I've done a lot of features for like Vice, Penthouse, a lot of foreign magazines, real crime in UK, you know, in Australia. But all like prison gangs, uh, mafia stuff, um, you know, like like African-American drug lords, you know, mostly like from the 80s, from the crack era, you know, kind of the ones that were lionized in the, uh, you know, the annals of hip hop lore, you know, like especially gangster rap, like in the mid 90s. So, I mean, I was actually locked up with a lot of these dudes, but um, I didn't I was just like when I was in prison, right, I was like. I started taking college classes, you know, and, and when you take college classes in there, I was taking correspondence mostly. Mm-hmm. And you can go two routes. It's like business, administration, or, or kind of like writing. <clears throat> you know, that's the only thing that's offered. It's real limited. So um, I was just trying to do something for my future, you know. So I, I started uh, taking college classes. Um, I got an AA degree. I got a BA degree. And I got a master's degree. Wow. You know. And Did you get a master's degree in? Humanities. Okay. So all my stuff's like liberal arts, humanities. And like I say, I didn't, this for me, it was like a, a, this was like a 17 year process. You know, I didn't not like, you know, it's not the typical college, you know, I got these degrees over 17 years. I started in 93. I got my master's degree in 2010. You know, I was taking like, you know, sometimes like nine, 12 credits a year because it's correspondence courses. So you got like nine months to do them, you know? So, um, I focused really heavily on the writing and then, uh, I started writing these stories. You know, I, I was always real athletic. I played a lot of sports. A lot of times I'd be the only white dude, you know, running ball with all the black dudes. I'd be the only white dude playing soccer with all the Mexicans, you know. So that's kind of how I did my time. You know, I, I played sports. I did college classes. You know, I worked out. And then um, after I was in about six or seven years, I started thinking, you know, like, what can I do for my future? You know, so I started writing. You know, I started writing these stories. You know, I started writing these books. And, um, I mean, literally, like, I was, like, the white dude in prison that was writing books about the African-American gangsters. So, you know, think about that just on the face of it after everything I've already described to you. You know, just to tell you, you know, because I had relationships with Jews because I played sports and I played ball with them. But, you know, after I'd been in a while, they knew what type of dude I was in. And, I, you know, I started writing these books, you know, and... uh you know, when you write books in there, it's like I always tell people, like, uh, like you hear people in the media all the time where they write books and, you know, they're, oh, they misquoted me. Like, you can't, you can't afford to misquote anybody in there, especially if you're a white dude writing books about African-American dudes. I mean, you could just imagine. Yeah, it's not going to look good. You could just imagine. But, um... You know, but I, I, I walked that path. You know, I, I navigated that path. You know, I, I, I got that respect. And really, the books I wrote were books that I wanted to read. You know what I'm saying? Because when, when I first got locked up, I, I, I was locked up on the East Coast for a lot, of, a lot of mafia dudes. So I fucking read all the mafia books. I was locked up with a lot of Colombian cocaine cartel dudes. I read all the Colombian cocaine cartel dudes. And then, like, in the mid-'90s, when, like, the gangster rap, is like jumping off, you know, and I'm playing ball with a lot of these dudes. And, you know, I'm a hip-hop, hip-hop kid, too, you know. You know, I grew up in the 80s, so, you know, that's when hip-hop started. So, you know, I was around 
you know, I've been a hip hop fan since 1983 when it first came out, you know, or when I first learned about it. But uh, I would watch, you know, I'd be one of the only white dudes like watching, you know, like these gangster rap videos. And I would hear the dudes, you know, they would like talk about these dudes, you know, the rappers. Mm -hmm. And then the guys like from New York or the guys from that area, they would start talking about them. And I'd be like, you know, I was like intrigued. And, uh, you know, so I was like looking for books. You know, I'm calling my mom and my girl. I'm like, order me books on these. And they were like, there's no books. And then, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd ask about these guys more, like these street legends, you know, from the hood. And, um, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, that dude's on B Block. And I'd be like, what? So that's how I first started writing because I started going to these guys. And I started saying, hey, man, like, let me tell your story. Yeah. And let me interview you. You know, and um, so all this, it was, I wrote books that I wanted to read. But at the same time, I was looking for a future for myself. You know, and my end goal, I knew I was getting out. I mean, I had 25 years, but I, knew I was young. I was 22, so I knew I was getting out. I knew I had a future. It wasn't like I had a life, you know, or it wasn't like I was went in when I was 40 or 50 and had 30 years, you know, I knew I was getting out. I'd still, you know, have my health. I'd still, you know, be young enough to have a career, you know? So, um, my end game, my end game the whole time was film, you know? I mean, I wanted to make film. I just couldn't make film cause I was in prison. You know what I'm saying? So I wrote books you know, and I wrote, I wrote books, you know, I always think my writing has always kind of been on the cutting edge, but I also think my writing too, it, um, it's changed. Cause like when I first started writing, I was taking these African American gangsters and I was, I was writing about them like, you know, like Billy, the kid, Jesse James type figures, you know? And then as I got older and I matured more and, and I kind of saw how the system was, you know, kind of a lot of some of the stuff we've talked about, you know, my views on the, on the system and the war on drugs and, and, and law enforcement and, you know, the, uh, you know, criminal uh, judiciary system or whatnot. Um, I started seeing things different. So my writing kind of changed to more like advocacy type of stuff, you know, from this, you know, romanticizing or, or glorifying, you know, gangsterism. So, you know, but I think everybody, you know, as you get older, you can kind of change and you start to see things different. And maybe, you know, what was cool to you at 25 might not be cool to you at 40. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, my writing kind of changed, but um, like still the whole time, man, I'm writing these books and, and in my head, I'm like, man, I'm a, when I get out, I'm, I'm going to make film. I'm going to do film. This is what I want to do. Because to me as a writer, film is like, like, that's like the ultimate evolution, you know, as a, as a writer, that's like the ultimate in game. Like, you know, if you're a writer, you know, to, to actually become like a director of like a film and, and shape this visual thing. Cause visual stuff just has such a, a much bigger impact, you know, than written words, you know, I mean, more people are going to watch a movie or a documentary. They're going to read a book. I mean, that's just a given, you know what I'm saying? I mean, cause right. it's shorter. It doesn't take as long, you know, people don't have the tension spans or whatever. So, um, yeah, I got out 2015. I had all these books. I started at the publishing house, Guerrilla Convict, while I was in prison. Um, I became like an, uh, you know, basically, I was doing columns for Vice, you know, like all in the early 2000s. Um, I had a column called I'm Busted, you know, about prison stuff. I was writing for all these other places. And um, 
yeah, just kind of built. And then, then when I got out, you know, I had this idea. I was like, man, I, I want to make films. So I actually went to this foray for almost like five years where I became like this national uh, true crime journalist, you know, just because, uh, I mean, they just paying me good money. So I was just running with it. You know, like right out of prison, I, I was making pretty good money, and they they were flying me all these different places. Like, dude, like, like you know when Apple has like those big unveiling events. Yeah, I've been flown to those twice, just because I was like a national journalist for Vice. You know, like I've covered like Sundance. You know, I've like covered all these fucking things. Vice pay you pretty good. Yeah, yeah, they pay pretty good. Do they? What yeah. do they? What do they pay? If you don't want me asking, I get like uh, I was getting like five hundred dollars for like twelve hundred words. Oh really? Yeah. Back in the two thousands, early two thousands. Um, no, I didn't get out till two thousand fifteen. Oh, this was after you got out. Yeah. Gotcha. When I, no, back when I was in prison, I was getting paid like three fifty. Oh, okay. Three fifty for about nine hundred, a thousand words. That was like my column. I was getting three fifty. Okay. So you know, I was getting like three fifty a month for a monthly column. Like you get three hundred fifty dollars in prison, you kind of like live like a king. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're doing good. Yeah. So. You know, but then I got out. It's crazy to hear all those stories about those uh, those vice reporters and producers that don't make shit. Yeah. Well, I'm saying, I mean, before they sold out. In the big scheme of things, I mean, you know, three fifty to five hundred dollars a piece is is kind of chump change, you know. And especially, you know, Vice is notorious for uh, being low budgeted on film stuff. You know, like where something like A and E or History might have like a two hundred fifty thousand budget for like. You know, like something like I was a teenage felon. You know, the budget might be like, like on an A and E or history, it might be like a couple hundred thousand. Like those budgets were like probably. Well, their whole low. thing is they're they're a cool company. They were well back in the day, maybe still a little bit now. They were mm-hmm. cool, so people wanted to work for them for free. Like it yeah. looks, it looks cool if you had Vice on your resume, so they could pay you nothing. Well, plus what they do, I I think a lot of uh, industry stuff does that i mean they get young kids when they come out of college when they can pay them nothing before they prove themselves right you know what i'm saying and, and pay them yeah for sure yeah pay them thirty five thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. you know to work 10 hours a day mm-hmm. i mean in the in the media industry so i mean i think i mean it's a little bit of exploitation but i mean i guess that's capitalism you know especially yeah, in sure. the media industry yeah, yeah. But uh, it's better than college too. Honestly, when you do that, when you, you learn so much more, when you actually go to work for a, a real company than uh, you do when you're in college, you're like, "What the fuck was I doing in college this whole time?" I mean, dude, I, I wrote stuff for free while I was in prison. I mean, I, dude, I got a ton of stuff that's never even been published. Like, while I was learning how to write, crafting mm-hmm. my trade. So, I mean, you know, if you got a passion for something, you can get paid for it. It's all good. Yeah, but, for sure. You know, but yeah, they, I mean, it could be an exploitive angle too. You know, I mean, you should always pay people what they, uh, you know, are worth or what they deserve. But um. Yeah, I got out. I had the goal to make film. I actually, I mean, right when I got out, I made this little, uh, uh, this short series. It's called Easter Bunny Assassin. Like, it's on YouTube. You know, I never really took off. I think maybe got like, you know, 20,000, 30,000 views now. But uh, I made that like, right. It's like a little fictional thing. I had like this little character called the Easter Bunny Assassin, you know, like a dude in a James Bond outfit with a bunny head. And he was going around like whacking people and uh, like other holiday crime figures you know like he whacked uh santa claus santa claus crack dealer uh there was jesus christ junkie (laughs) you know and tooth fairy mafia don so this was like a little kind of thing that i envisioned in prison Mm -hmm. and i got out and that was kind of how i learned that was like my first foray into film i just got like some uh you know I, i convinced some local college students that were you know in film school i'm like hey let's go shoot this you know and i bought some cameras and bought some equipment and they were like fuck it let's do it 
So yeah, that yeah. was yeah, that was kind of almost like my my training, my first training. But then um, it's on YouTube now. Yeah, it's you on can, YouTube. You can watch it. Yeah, Easter yeah. Bunny Assassin. Yeah, Easter Bunny Assassin. Yeah. We'll have to <laughs> check that out. It's kind of like some. It's like some low budget gorilla. Hey, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I yeah, think like cool we made, we made the whole thing for like like two thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was just like the food and the batteries <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for the yeah, camera yeah. for sure and the and the uh, the media. But um, then you know I I really got lucky when I got involved with White Boy. You know the documentary is on Netflix now that I wrote and produced. Um, I interviewed this director Sean Reck. He did this film called uh, Murder in the Park that was on Showtime. You know, it was about a wrongful conviction. And Sean Reck had actually cut his teeth. Uh, he did like 200 Crime Stopper shows for all the networks. And then, you know, this is like 2000, whatever, 16, when I first came into contact with him, like right when true crime is like blowing up, right after, uh, you know, making a murder. So um, he does this, a Murder in the Park. It's on Showtime. It gets named, Time Magazine names it like top 15, you know, true crime documentary for the year. So I interviewed him for Vice, and actually, for whatever reason, Vice ended up killing the piece, so the piece never ran. But I, I struck up a relationship with him, and he had just finished that film, and he was actually looking you know, for his second film. So we started talking and he found out about my background. You know, he was a true crime dude. So, you know, mostly a lot of people that are into true crime, they're going to like my backstory. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So we started talking and, and, and he was also, uh, you know, he was amazed at all the work, all the writing I'd done. He was like, whoa, man, that's crazy. You did 21 years and you did all this stuff. So um, he flew me up to Cleveland and he basically, he's like, man, uh, you know, because I told him, you know, I wasn't shy. I told him I wanted to make film. You know, I told him I did that little Easter Bunny assassin thing for what it was worth. But I said, you know, I, I wanted to make docs. I, I saw myself, you know, doing true crime and eventually features and stuff like that. So he flew me up there and we started talking about ideas. You know, like he was like, well, what ideas you have? So I was throwing different ideas at him. You know, about like some prison related stuff or, you know, I think at this time I was like on really this uh, exposing the prison thing, you know, because I was just out. So I wanted to do this documentary that exposed all the evils of the prison industry. So that was like my big thing that I was pitching to him. But he was kind of like, well, I don't know. And then, um, you know, and then I just casually mentioned, you know, that I'd wrote all these articles on the guy White Boy Rick for Vice, you know, for trying to get him out, saying that he should be out. And, um that struck his interest because he knew that they had this Hollywood movie with Matthew McConaughey that it was just going into production called white boy, Rick, you know, about the same story. So he found out I knew white boy, you know, he found out, you know, I had the foundations of the story from these articles, you know, I'd written for like the fix and vice and vice news. So, uh, he was basically like, you know, let's do this, you know? And, and I kind of made a deal with him. I was like, look, um, I go, I want you to basically, you know, mentor me on this film, you know, because I knew how to tell a story. You know, I wrote books, but I didn't know how to make a film. I didn't know the nuts and bolts, you know, how everything went. And when I walked in this dude's office, too, I saw uh, he had nine Emmys, you know, in his office. Not yeah. national, but regional Emmys that he'd won for all those Crime Stopper shows, all like Ohio Emmys, you know. And I was like, okay, this dude must know what the fuck he's doing. So, you know, we made a deal, and he said, you know, so he all the shoots, like he would fly me in. You know, he would involve me in the editing process. And really, you know, he taught me. He taught me, uh, 
you know, how to make a film, you know, a documentary film. And mm-hmm. this, I mean, this dude is a, is a really good filmmaker. So um, we made White Boy. You know, I, I wrote and produced that, and I learned from him. I appear in that, too, you know, as, as a talking head. And uh, that was, like, kind of my initial foray into film. And that actually came out, man. That actually came out on Stars like, around 2018. Really? Yeah, and it was weird because I, I knew it was a real good movie. I knew this movie. It was this crazy story. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. It never kind of took off. And I don't, maybe it was because when the, the, the white boy Rick Hollywood movie came out, I think it, it kind of bombed. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, just whatever the it circumstances. Lost a in it. Yeah. And, and, and our doc kind of came out around the same time. So maybe we got buried because of that movie and it bombed. So nobody had an interest. So, right. So we were actually on stars for like almost like two years. And, you know, people knew it was cool. I had a documentary on stars, but it was. You know, I had other projects that, you know, I, I wanted to get off, but I wasn't getting any interest. You know, nobody was interested in funding any of my projects. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, and then, like, crazy shit happened. Like, you know, the pandemic, uh, you know, the riots, you know, the Black Lives Matters going national, people talking about, you know, police brutality and police corruption all over the world. Uh you know, I, I just think the pandemic really slowed everything down in this country, you know, because bef- before I think when it first came out, like 2018, it's like just a rat race. Everybody's trying to get money, capitalism. They're not really, I, I don't think people were open or receptive to the story that we show in White Boy Rick because it, the level of corruptions are like so fucking crazy. I don't think people believed it. Mm-hmm. So they just dismissed it. But then, you know, after the pandemic and everything that happened, you know, that I just mentioned through the pandemic and you know, the last uh, couple years of Trump, which were, were pretty chaotic. And, and like I say, I'm not I'm not pro-Trump or, you know, against Trump. You know, really, I don't like Biden. Biden is the one who made, built all the fucking prisons. You know, him and Clinton. But, you know, I'm not, I, I try not to, you know, get politically involved. But, I mean, I, I think anybody would say the last two years of Trump were uh, pretty chaotic in this country. Yeah. You know, at least mm-hmm. in the media, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, so I think all those things that happened that I just described kind of made people more receptive to what white boys about and the level of police corruption that we're talking about. So then when it went on Netflix, you know, it went off stars and we signed a new streaming deal with Netflix and it went on Netflix in April, you know, right at the. I guess the end of the pandemic. I don't know. Maybe the pandemic is still going. April of this year. Yeah. And, um, yeah, dude, it went on there and it, and it was like, it was a brand new movie, dude. It blew up. It was like the first two weeks it was on. It was like top 10. Really? And it wasn't like, it wasn't like top 10 documentaries. It was like top 10 on the whole site for like movies, series, everything everything for two weeks straight. Right. And then, uh, like they said in April and May, like, it had 20 million views, man. Like, it just fucking exploded. So, I don't know. It's weird how, how things happen. Because everything that's happening to me now, like, film-wise, I was ready for this shit to happen, like, in 2018. I really thought it was going to happen in 2018. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, it didn't happen. But, um, you know, so I had, like, this whatever, like, almost three-year fucking delay of my fucking film career. Not to say I was still trying to make shit happen, but... um now it's hard to make shit happen in that in that whole world the whole film industry yeah i mean it it is i know i've been battling man i've I've been trying to make shit happen but uh 
you know, now since I got the recognition from White Boy and White Boy blew up, it's just made people are way more receptive to my ideas because um, I, I tell people I equate it to like, you know, like when the New England Patriots win the Super Bowl. All right, everybody knows Tom Brady's like the main dude, right? But then you see like all the support players sign these big contracts with other mm-hmm. teams, right? So it's like the same like White Boy. Like I'm not the main person on White Boy. Sean Reck was the main person on white boy you know the editor brandon kimmer he was the second main person on white boy mm-hmm. you know so if anything and there's this other producer scott bernstein so maybe me and him might be like the third fourth you know fourth third whatever you know so you know i contributed to it you know and i helped shaped it and and you know the the story the origin came to me the access came from me you know but um you know i was a supporting player on this documentary i'm not going to steal credit from anybody else you know what I'm saying? They deserve mm-hmm. their credit for making a real good film. But, you know, I helped to make this film. I was a part of it. So it's now like uh, I got that recognition. And so it's like people think like, you know, I'm I'm a part of that magic. So maybe I have that magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's weird because I, I always tell people like I'm the same person. Like I haven't really changed. But it's like the way people look at me has changed because of that film getting 20 million views in two months on Netflix. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was, it was weird because I, I, I started going to Sundance about four years ago, and um, I started meeting some people on Sundance, and I met all these like amazing, talented filmmakers, and they got their films in Sundance, and they got their films in Cannes and Tribeca and SWSX, and I'm just like, I'm like, fuck, like, this is what I want to do. You know? And um, White Boy blew up, and, like, none of these dudes have, like, a top 10 film on Netflix. Yeah. And they're, like, calling me. They're asking me, like, <laughs> like, what's the secret? How did I do it? And I'm, like, you know, it, it's just, it was, like, this shift. You know, so it, it's weird, man. I mean, I'm, I'm still dealing with it now, you know. I mean, I'm getting used to it. But, you know, so I've got a funding for a lot of my different projects. So um, I got this film, Nightlife. It's, a, it's about um, the violence in North City, you know, that's about to come out. You know, I follow this dude around North City, like where the worst parts of St. Louis, we followed him around with cameras for three years. He's basically a, a violence interrupter. This, he's, a, he's a preacher named uh, Reverend Kenneth McCoy. We followed him around from like 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. in the morning on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, like with all the drug addicts, the, you know, the pimps, the prostitutes, you know, the, the drug dealers, the gang bangers, you know, the homeless people. You know, that's what he does, that he administers to these people. You know, these are these are his flock. You know, he takes out sandwiches. So I followed him. I followed him with a three-camera team. Really? Yeah, yeah. It was crazy. Like, gunshots, people threatened to steal our cameras and yeah. smash our cameras and threaten us. All Holy types of crazy shit. shit. I bet that was wild. Yeah, it was wild. So that doc's almost ready. Hell yeah. Um, Where are you going to release that documentary? documentary? Well, I just took it to a sales agent, and I'm thinking maybe a film festival, too. So, you know. Okay. So, yeah, I don't, I don't have, you know, I always tell people, like, you hear a lot of people say, oh, it's going to be on Netflix. I mean, unless you have some, unless you're like Martin Scorsese and you have, like, some overall deal with Netflix, you can't say where the shit's going to end up. You know, I, I, mm. I do shit independently. You know what I'm saying? I, I work with private investors. They give me money, and I do stuff on spec. Yeah. When then when I finish it, then I go to a sales agent, and they try to sell it. Right. You know, so uh, that's that's where I'm at right now. So I got that nightlife program project. I got this uh, project I'm, I'm calling. Uh, it's an LSD trade project. Uh, I'm calling it uh, the psychedelic revolution right now. 
it's about the history of the LSD trade, you know, the underground chemists, you know, um, how they locked up and targeted all the people for LSD like myself in, in the 80s and 90s and, and put us in prison for a long time and how now we've almost gone 360 and they're talking about legalizing psychedelics mm-hmm. and decriminalizing yeah. it. So that's what that, that's my LSD doc I'm working on. I got a Humboldt County doc I'm working on. You know, that it tells the history of Humboldt County and the Emerald Triangle and how these people up in the mountains of Northern California became known for growing the best marijuana in the world and at one time in the 80s and 90s supplied 60% of the domestic product in the U.S. You know, then it um, it tells how, like, you know how, like, they were terrorized and where they lived was basically militarized with, like, helicopters and the military going in, you know, and arresting them and throwing them in jail and, you know, cutting down their crops. And then, you know, it, it goes full circle to, like, you know, I was locked up with some of these guys from Humboldt County, and now they're out now, and they have legal farms, you know. Yeah, and, it's and crazy. You, yeah, so you would think it's all good. You know, these guys are legal now, but now... You know, with big ag and big pharma coming in, the the marijuana game in California, you know, a lot of these guys are small farmers. You know, that these guys are up in the mountains. They're small farms. You know, they they only got, you know, so many spots. And, like, down in Southern California, you know, in Santa Rosa, they have these big greenhouses, you know, with these massive operations. And, and uh, these guys are struggling. So, you know, that's what that film is about. It's about the history of Humboldt House. County. It's about the Emerald Triangle. It's about why they grow the best marijuana in the world. Uh, why they should be considered like the Napa Valley, Napa Valley of cannabis. But you know, it's also about the problems that they're facing right now in the market in California and how a lot of these farmers, like the cops, couldn't make them stop growing weed. The war on drugs couldn't make them stop growing weed. You know, the the droughts and the fires couldn't make them start growing weed. But now. A lot of them might have to stop growing weed. They might give up because, of, you know, big ag because they're taking over the market and they're driving can't the price money. down. Yeah. yeah, they can't make no money. So that's my Humboldt County doc. So that's my, I got my LSD doc. I got my cannabis doc. I got an ecstasy doc that is um, it's about this crew out of Atlanta called the Southside Boys that were like these huge, are these huge ecstasy suppliers. They were important from Amsterdam. They were supplying, like, you know, all Atlanta, all the Southwest, down here in Florida. One of their big hubs was Panama City. And one of their, one of their stomping grounds was uh, the club, uh, the, club uh, La, the club La Vila, you know, which is a famous club in Panama City. It's like the world's biggest nightclub. It's closed now. Mm. It's, like, it's like where they had, a, you know, like MTV used to film there yeah. and a lot of the, the WCW Nitro and stuff like that. And I think, like, Girls Gone Wild. But um, so I'm doing that on the that ecstasy ring called the Southside, the Southside Boys, and then uh, I'm working on this other project. It's called Dope Men. It's basically about America's first drug cartel, and it goes all the way back to the 20s, and it looks at like, you know, when the mafia started the international global drug trade. You know, because in pop culture, you know, in a lot of movies, there's this thing like the mafia says like, oh, like we don't fuck with heroin, but I mean they they. They were the first drug cartel. You know, they, mm-hmm. heroin has been their biggest money maker since, you know, before Prohibition ended. So that I got that story, too, so that goes all the way back. So that's kind of like, uh, you know, the projects. I'm hoping to get all these projects out, like, within the next uh, 12 to 18 months. Goddamn, Seth. That's a lot of projects. Hey, you're on it, man. <laughs> you are a busy dude. Yeah. 
I don't know if we're ever going to find an answer to this, uh, the prison industrial complex in this country. But uh, if anyone can shine light on it, it's probably you. Yeah, I don't know, man. I just saw. I my biggest thing now is um, let all the nonviolent weed people out, man. I mean, they're still like, from the numbers I've read, there's still like yeah. forty thousand people locked up, nonviolent, for cannabis. Mm. Let them out, man. You know what I'm saying? You got people making millions of dollars, man. Yeah. You know, so let these people out. Like I said, I've been in prison. Any reasonable person will agree there's people in prison that belong in prison. And like I say, I, I don't hate law enforcement. You know, that's their job. Lock up those violent people. They don't deserve to be out here. If you, you know, whatever, sometimes you might do something violent and, you know, you learn your lesson and, you know, you're okay and you assimilate society. But these people that are repeat violent offenders, put them in prison, man. That's where they deserve, man. This is like fucking polite society. You shouldn't have to be walking around. You know, thinking someone's going to threaten you or fucking whip you with a gun or shoot you or take your shit. You know what I'm saying? Right. That's not what this world is about. That's not what America's about. But, you know, so those people belong in prison. But, you know, all these nonviolent drug offenders, especially the marijuana guys, I mean, let them out, man. Give lock up people, the serial killers. Lock yeah, up the chomos. Yeah, man. Legalize all drugs yeah, and we'll man. all be fine. I mean, shit. You know what I'm saying? Drugs is just a commodity, man. Yeah. No. Cool, man. Well, let everybody know where they can find your projects, your work, whatever you're working on now online. Yeah. Um, well, I got my website, gorillaconvict.com. Uh, I also got uh, sethferrante.com. And, um, like, I'm on social media, man. I'm on, I'm on Instagram. I'm on uh, Facebook. I'm on Twitter. So I post about a lot of my stuff. Like, when I do my different shoots, you know, I, I post, like, behind-the-scene photos. You know, I'm actually I'm going to be in Humboldt. Coming up uh, on the 11th of September, I'm doing a, a two-week shoot there. I'll be there from the 11th to the, the 26th on a 10-day shoot. So I'll be posting, you know, a lot of stuff. You know, if, if you like cannabis, if you like marijuana, you know, follow me on Instagram, you know, Seth Ferrante, and you'll see all those, you know, images of the Emerald Triangle, like the Mecca of marijuana, you know, if that's your thing. But, you know, also, I'll keep all my work current. I got some other books coming out. I got a new book coming out called Criminal Escapades, which is about a lot of uh, articles I wrote on mafia guys, you know, that I was locked up, like famous mafioso, you know, some other prison gang leaders and stuff like that. It has, like, 20 chapters. That's coming out on Guerrilla Convict, my, my published house. And then um, I'm doing this other book that's going to come out next spring called Thug Life, The True Story of Hip-Hop and Organized Crime. It's on this boutique publisher called uh hamakar you know they they mostly do they do a lot of boxing crime stuff but i'm, I'm like one of their first forays into hip-hop so it's actually to me this book is really special because um it's gonna be my first hardback cool man okay yeah so and hopefully uh i've been talking to the publisher but hopefully i want to see it i want to see it in the airport man i want to walk through the airport every time i you know i travel a lot now and every time i walk through the airport i just like i want to see my fucking book hell yeah, yeah. In the fucking to me as a writer, you know yep. books. That's like the ultimate. Yeah, like when you see sure. your fucking book in the airport, you walk by and see it right there. Yeah, I'd be like, yes, hell yeah. Take pictures, <laughs> yeah, for Instagram. <laughs> cool I man, it, I did it for the gram. Yep. Hey, but look, I appreciate you doing this. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, man. Look, I actually I had some friends in St. Louis that listen to you guys all the time, and right, and they knew you know like when my media profile was, was kind of ticking up, you know, with White Boy. And, you know, I'd done a lot of different podcasts, but, you know, smaller podcasts and stuff like that. 
And then, you know, when, when my, my profile started kind of taking up, they, they actually told me, they're like, man, you need to go on concrete. <laughs> they're like, you need to go on concrete podcast. I'm like, what the fuck is concrete? They're like, that's like the fucking biggest true crime fucking podcast, man. <laughs> they're like, sick, you need to man. go on, you know, and I had like several of my friends in St. Louis, like they listen to you guys religiously. And then, uh, so I already knew concrete, but I didn't know how to get in touch with you guys. And then it was weird. Yeah. You know, your, your producer, Tyler, uh, he heard me. I was doing something on Clubhouse. Oh, yeah. And he just happened to, like, you know, chime in and caught me. That's and then, hilarious. Yeah, and we started talking and, like, hooked it up. It's, it's just weird how shit happens. Yeah, know? he's but got a problem with Clubhouse. He's yeah. on there hard, yeah. Yeah. No, but that's how he found me, you yeah, know. And, but it was weird because it was, like, right before he reached out to me, just, like, the two weeks before. Yeah. Like, I had some of my buddies. They were like, dude, you need to go on concrete. And I was like, what the fuck is concrete? Yeah, that's right. And they man, was, yeah, man. they were, like, breaking down. I mean, because they're, they're, like, <laughs> your fucking... They're like your fucking obsessive fans. They That's probably, awesome. They Sick, probably know. Shout out to they the guys every in St. Louis. Shout show. out to St. Louis. Jeremy. Jeremy Salvatore. That's your number one fan in St. Louis. Hell yeah. Out, Shout out to Jeremy. Hit yeah. us up. We'll send you some merch, man. Hell yeah. Cool, man. Well, thank you again for coming down. I really All right. appreciate it. All right. Thank you for Great the whiskey. Story. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Anytime. Right. Cheers. Cheers. Goodbye, world. <laughs> <laughs>